Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I have more than two and a half hours of comic book madness to analyze, including the high oddness that was the Marvel Legacy GIF announcements, the inspired Looney Tuniness of the DC Looney Tune crossovers, deep dives into the current Batman run by Tom King, the first volume of Doom Patrol, Brick by Brick, by Gerard Way and Nick Darrington, and the delightful madness of manga and theory and practice by manga superstar Hirohiko Araki. All this and our good pal, much, much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Leave us comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, howdy. Howdy yourself. (laughs) (laughs) After that build-up, we're not just like, (laughs) 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 So how are you? Wait, wait, no, should we go right into comics? How are Marvel Comics? Oh, that, that's where you're going majorly. Uh, did you see my Twitter run yesterday, or for that matter, today? Uh, y- yes and no. Okay. I saw, I saw uh, a good chunk of it yesterday, and then today I feel like there was only two or three tweets that were related to it. Am I wrong? Oh, yeah, you really are wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there was a bunch. Um, for for people who don't know what I'm complaining about, first of all, I apologize in advance because I'm about to complain a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and secondly, this is the background, basically. Marvel announced the Marvel Legacy titles on Friday in the worst way imaginable, in a rollout that was so appallingly fucked up that it is breathtaking and makes you think, didn't Marvel used to be good at this? And wasn't that like two years ago? What has happened? Yep. Uh, what, what, the headline is this. Marvel announced 51 comics yesterday via animated GIF spread across six different websites, uh, including Marvel.com and the social media accounts of its PR staff and or PR emails that went out sending a GIF at a time. Wow. Also, the emails didn't go out on any sort of schedule. Like, it came out across, like, a half hour, but it was like, here's an email, ten minutes later, here's another email, two minutes later, here's another email, thirteen minutes later, and another one. I mean, it was, it was insane. Yeah. The role, it was, was just staggeringly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that, but maybe it was bad for a reason. Maybe it was bad because the titles that were announced are basically the current Marvel line with maybe three editions. Yes. Uh, I, oh yes, yeah, so they so they announced fifty one books. There are fifty two. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a title that officially has been held back because of editorial, but it's the obvious title missing from the lineup. So you're like, oh, I wonder what that title is, everyone. <laughs> Which is shall a, I yes, shall please. I write down very mm-hmm. quickly what they are? Yes. So the fifty one in order of release are. Incredible Hulk, America, X-Men Blue, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows, 
Astonishing X-Men, Iceman, Invincible Iron Man, Luke Cage, Old Man Logan, Secret Warriors, Champions, Hawkeye, Guardians of the Galaxy, Jessica Jones, US Avengers, Avengers, Cable, either Deadpool or the Despicable Deadpool, it's still not clear because again, incredibly botched rollout, Moon Knight, The Punisher, Royals, Black Panther, The Mighty Captain Marvel, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, Generation X, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Venom, She-Hulk, the former Hulk book, now called She-Hulk, Monsters Unleashed, Black Bolt, Amazing Spider-Man, All-New Wolverine, Spirits of Vengeance, The Defenders, Jean Grey, X-Men Gold, Spider-Gwen, Spider-Man, Ben Riley, The Scarlet Spider, The Unbelievable Gwenpool, Thanos, The Uncanny Avengers, Spider-Man vs. Deadpool, Mighty Thor, Ms. Marvel, The Falcon, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, Weapon X, and, staggeringly, Marvel 2-in-1. Right. Ending on a high note. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and what's what's the missing title? Captain America. Oh, okay. Obviously. Obviously. I I, I got to tell you, I, for myself, and this is the least important response, and we can get right back to it. I you'd asked me a couple of weeks ago if the, or maybe a couple of months ago, if this whole um, Marvel Legacy thing, as an older Marvel fan, if if it was attractive to me. And I, I have to say that watching, going to the website and, and watching the gifts, um, the, the reactions that I held were basically, there, there is no way to actually track what is happening. <laughs> so there's no way, like, I'm just seeing gifts, basically. And usually it's like, oh, I remember that cover. I really like that book. And then they would redo the cover. And most of them where I'm like, eh, that art is not as good, is it? You know? <laughs> like, Okay, so so let's actually explain the animated GIF thing. Yeah, please. So Marvel announced on uh, Friday morning, like, Marvel Legacy is so in touch with Marvel's past, we're going to have covers recreating classic Marvel covers. So basically it's Marvel's hip-hop variants, but for Marvel Comics. Right. Which is, you know... Kind of weird, mm-hmm. but okay. Um, and so they rolled it out, and it was over. Hang on, I should open up my email. Because uh, here's the funny thing: Marvel didn't actually put out a list of all the comics. No, no. Which you think they would, right? But no, they didn't. What they did is they sent e- PR emails linking all the the websites that hosted the gifts. Right. So they went out at comicbook.com, comicvine, sci-fi. Previews World, a.k.a. Diamond, Nerdist, Newsarama, IGN, and Marvel.com. So I guess that's more than six, uh, eight, eight uh, websites they went out at. Um, each of them got, I think, six, six gifts, and then the rest went out uh, in, un, in other ways. Um, again, it seemed to me, mm-hmm. from, from an observer point of view, that these stories went live at like non-scheduled times as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like seems to be irregular times uh hilariously things like sci-fi.com their list of titles in the written post and the list of gifts they had were different mm-hmm. uh either sci-fi or nerdist can't remember which got the names of their comics wrong like it was it was weird shit like that well i think super super strange i i sort of wonder the extent to which marvel thought that they were going to do this gambit of 
Well, it's a couple of things, I, I think. I think Marvel's like, how can we get the biggest bang for the least amount of buck? And it's like, okay, we just spread these out and we turn it into sort of a treasure slash scavenger hunt and the websites will basically do the work of for running us. around and yeah, compiling everything while also sort of quote unquote, you know, speculating and or updating as more come out, you know, um, which at least when I looked at the websites while I was at work yesterday in my very half-assed fashion, it seemed, and, and I have to say, I do not go to a wide variety of comics websites, but it sure seemed like people were more or less playing along in a way. However, that being said, almost all the commentary that I saw was pretty either underwhelmed or bordering on the negative and hostile. Because, as I believe you pointed out, not only was it very rare for the original creators who did the the covers being homaged to be mentioned on they they were this. not it's yeah. not even rare they were not well there was the there was the one the new warriors one the dave johnson one that did mention that had johnson's oh, name oh, on it and Starenko's, right okay you you mean like after after like uh, actually the artwork itself yeah cuz definitely in the stories they they were not right and the artists for the variants were listed in some of the stories mhm mm mhm mm like, everything about it was super weird. Yeah. No, and I mean, it really has a strange, uh, it, it really, like, um, I don't know, you know, it, watching it was, and it's weird how often this ends up being a touchstone on our podcast for some weird reason, kind of reminded me of when the Yul Brenner robot in Westworld runs amok. It just seemed like, it just seemed like a robot that suddenly like blew a fuse and started doing shitty things. That's what Marvel's PR machine seemed like yesterday, you know? So I also have to read you the email that went out on Thursday, quote unquote, announcing what they were doing on Friday. And you tell me if anything in this email sounds like they're announcing what actually happened. Right. You ready? Mm -hmm. Headline. Every hero, every title, every story. Tomorrow, Marvel Legacy changes the comic book industry. Subheadline: Honoring the past while proudly stepping towards the future. <laughs> okay, get yeah. ready for a new dawn, true believers. One whose rays will touch every corner of the Marvel universe in the days to come. Tomorrow, get ready for the return of what you've been longing for and more. Prepare for the debut of Marvel Legacy, a new initiative that will take things back to our iconic history with a firm eye on the future. Marvel Legacy will present stories that remind everyone, newcomers and longtime fans alike, why Marvel stands as the premier name in fiction said Editor-in-Chief Axel Alonso. Our titles will unearth gems from Marvel's rich history, remind readers of connections between characters, and usher in the return of some major characters who've been missed. Above all else, we want to inject our comics with a massive dose of fun. I'd like to point out, this quote is from the original PR in April. It's not a new quote. Wow. Kicking off this September with Marvel Legacy Issue 1, an oversized 50-page one-shot special, Marvel Comics titles step towards a bright new future. One that harkens back to what has made this, what has made Marvel a household name while looking towards tomorrow. With fun and thrilling reveals primed to excite fans, both existing and new, this fall, prepare for Marvel Legacy. That's it. Wow. What about that? Mm -hmm. Says, we're going to be announcing the titles. At all. Never mind, via animated GIFs on multiple websites. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. Again, it makes you wonder if, like, I don't know. I honestly... Well, matter, what actually says there, we're doing something on Friday. Because mm-hmm. when you're talking about looking to the future, tomorrow, it's very nebulous. <laughs> to the point where I emailed them back. I was like, do you mean tomorrow in the vague terms or tomorrow Friday? Oh, I and see And they were like, oh, saying. we mean... They're like, oh, no, we mean tomorrow Friday. <laughs> but they didn't say, like, oh, we're announcing titles. They were just like, yeah, just look out for things tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, just, it's the world outside your window. Wait a minute. Do you mean actually outside my window? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What What do you – like, is this, is this a metaphorical window? Or is this like out your window? Like, no, it's literally your window. We're actually outside your window right we, now. We are staging things right now outside a window. There's a diorama. Look out your window. Jesus. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that happened. And then so the rollout, as I said, was across eight websites, including Marvel.com. Right. And then he still had some gifts left over, all of which says to me that something went hideously wrong with yeah. the rollout. Yeah. That like a website dropped out or two websites if you're doing lots of other people's websites and your own and you still have some gifts left over. You know, something weird has happened there. Yeah, something the- weird has happened there. I, I, but I mean, who knows? I mean, honestly, just the fact that the time that it was rolling out really makes me feel... Don't you feel like there's, like, a Marvel editor standing over, like, one of the PR interns being like, how much longer is it going to be before Adobe Multimedia Studio craps out that next GIF? Uh, I don't know. It's taken... Uh, I don't know. Give me another six minutes. I don't know. But not only that, like, the GIFs are amazing because they're kind of shitty quality. Mm-hmm. But, like, the, the Weapon X GIF, for example, mm-hmm. had, goes from, like, the Barry Windsor Smith cover to the... the um, God, who is it? Who did the cover? Uh, I can't remember who did the cover, but it's not who was credited by it on the website, which is the funniest thing. Wow. Uh, they credited someone else, which was hilarious. And then on Twitter today, he was like, look, it's my cover. And I wanted to be like, it's not what Marvel said. Um, but on that cover, they have creator credits, except it says pack TBD TBD. Cause that's the one you put out as press. Right. You put out pre- covers that actually have creator credits to say TBD on it. As part of your animated GIF. I'm wondering when Marvel says that they are returning to their glorious past, uh, maybe they're actually going to – and if you think about it, this would solve two birds with one stone, right? Like a lot of people have been complaining that basically what Marvel Legacy is promising us is supposedly different, but as far as we can tell – like, most of the creators are the same. Literally. Most of the books are the same. I mean, in all seriousness, how is Monsters Unleashed making it into the okay. new light? So, this, how, is what, this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying, Graham. Follow me here. The new way to make these books seem new and refreshing, if you complain that Brian Bendis is still writing it, or Dan, you know, after like 97 years, or Dan Slott's still on it, and you want to give a shout out to comics glorious past, you just stop, you just strip the credits. You just strip the credits right off the books. Like they're just, just in the golden age, there's not going to be credit boxes on these comics. So there's no way we can complain about who's making them. And, uh, and they've cleverly foreshadowed that by doing such a, a shitty job of, uh, well, releasing whose, whose names were even involved in, uh, in the, uh, the well, gifts. So let's, let's talk about the information missing from these title announcements, shall we? Sure. Creator, creator teams. Mm-hmm. Price point. Issue frequency. Yeah. Anything other than the name of the comic. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of nuts. Like it's it's genuinely. That said, I could be wrong. I seem to remember Rebirth did the same thing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Where they literally just put the names of the comics out first, and then they had like an event. Um, and I might be misremembering. Mm-hmm. But I remember they did like here's the names. But when they did that, they also went, and on this date, we'll tell you when. Well, at least there was that, yeah. So, but, cause it definitely seemed like, I think as you pointed out, the whole point for this rollout, like, these books aren't debuting until October. So it doesn't really seem like. Yeah, it's not like solicits are next week. Solicits are literally a month away. September solicits came out this week. So they have a, they had a month to do this. Yeah. I, it honestly all feels like the strangest fucking unforced error. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, exactly. It's an unforced error, or I think honestly, there's um, someone just got scared that 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 people are just that there's no one's going to hang out long enough for them to relaunch. You know. Well, so here's so as I said, I've been complaining about this on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it turns out when you complain about things like this on Twitter, lots of people get in touch. <laughs> Well, so when you, Graham, I got it. some of the stuff mm-hmm. I've heard, and some of it is very contradictory. Just want to put this out there ahead of times. Mm-hmm. I've heard from a comic book professional <laughs> that Legacy is essentially Convergence, and that there is another relaunch coming after this, wow. and that Legacy is literally placeholder. Mm-hmm. I've heard that's definitely not the case. <laughs> the Legacy is it. Mm-hmm. The legacy is there is no relaunch planned after this mm-hmm. at all. I have heard that there is a relaunch planned, but it's only for the X-Books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually heard from multiple people that the X-Books basically are considered right now as a flop. Uh, that, that Resurrection relaunch. The is, Resurrection Golden Blue was, yeah, considered a flop. It, it's, it's considered uh, a disaster. And there is a high-profile event happening next year, um, which I'm not going to completely say what happens, but uh, a very big-name creator who has a Marvel history is apparently coming back. But things have not been signed, mm. so I'm not going to say anything ridiculous like, and it's blah, 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 and then people get upset. Right. But it's it's legitimately the name that I think would excite people. Mm-hmm. I'm tempted to say now and then you could just do the music. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that would. I heard you thinking people get so upset on it. <laughs> um, Graham, are you still there? Did you go mute on me? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. For some reason, I was like background died away. Uh, yeah. So I I feel like there's. Hmm, it's interesting because because I'm like yeah. Uh, Marvel seems pretty fucked, which is not really a very good thing for the direct marketplace. For anyone? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, amongst other things I've heard, uh, retailers are apparently super pissed with the rollout. Yeah. Uh, because, as was visible in social media yesterday, no one seems to be happy with this rollout, or these titles. Mm-hmm. No one was like, oh, Marvel likes to look super exciting now. I, a lot of people, a lot of people are saying, I literally have no idea what Marvel Legacy is. I don't know if it's a relaunch. I don't know if it's a branding thing. I yeah. don't know if it's a storyline. Like, we have no idea. And sure enough, at this point, we're two months after the initial announcement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that no one, 
I mean, the hardcore Marvel fans don't seem to know what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that there's no Captain America book in the list, even though Captain America is literally front and center of the, the cover of Marvel X issue one. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not like they're going to play the, you know, Steve's gone. He's literally on the artwork that you've released. Well, for the legacy, you mean for the one shots, right? Yeah, yeah, for the one shot. Well, but I mean, well, I don't know. I, no, I, I mean Marvel Legacy issue one. Oh, you mean past the one shots or whatever, yeah. or the thing, the the thing that's no, supposed to be like DC yeah. Rebirth. There's, sorry, there's yeah, the got it. Generation one shots. Yeah, sorry, which I forgot that. Two different things. Right, right, right. Sorry. But no, there's Marvel Legacy issue one, which right. is DC Rebirth, except it is shorter and more expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember they did the Jeff Johns like one shot, and it was eighty pages for two ninety nine. Yes. The Marvel Legacy issue one is a one shot. That's like Jason forty Lee, pages for five ninety nine, right? Fifty pages for five ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> because never ever doubt that Marvel is going to be like, we can do this, we can do this DC book, but pricier and shorter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people will love it because we're Marvel. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's going to be a big deal. I've heard that also retailers are super pissed that it's a five ninety nine book. Well, of course. Of course uh, they are. Because there was a lot of excitement around the idea that... Honestly, there was a lot of excitement that Legacy was Rebirth. Mm-hmm. That it was going to be exactly the same thing. There's going to be a cheap book, a cheap big book to get everyone excited. Right. And then there's going to be like, you know, we've got a new mission statement. Because, you know, Rebirth did have a relatively new mission statement. Mm-hmm. Even if the mission statement was, we're doing the superheroes you want, you guys. Sure. We're sorry. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, is that, I mean, is that happening with this? I mean, I guess Totally Awesome Hulk has become Incredible Hulk. And the Mighty Thor variant cover stunningly is called The Death of Mighty Thor. Yeah. And is a makeover of Death of Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Which seems uh, tacky in a weird way. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, shall we talk about the new books? The, the ones that actually are new? Sure. Uh, the Falcon. Gets mm-hmm. his own series as the Falcon. So anyone who's hoping Sam Wilson is going to be Captain America, nope, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely not. Uh, Spirits of Vengeance, right? Is is a surprise, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't really seem to make Ghost Rider work. So Spirits of Vengeance seems like a way to do a Ghost Rider book without doing Ghost Rider. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, yes. I, 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 I should say, when I say they can't seem to make Ghost Rider work, I mean sales-wise. Yes, yes. No, 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 no. A lot of people love the Ghost Rider book as exists. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to sell. No, I, it's funny, yes, uh, by all means. Um, I see that. I, part of me is like, I sort of pray to God that they've got, that Jason Aaron will be working on that, cause that seems kind of in his wheelhouse, and I don't know if there's anyone else at Marvel I'd be really interested in doing, seeing do it. What's that? Did he do Ghost Rider? He did a Ghost Rider, yeah, run, right? I'm yeah, not- exactly. Well, but what I'm saying is, is that uh, so he's he's comfortable, film familiar, and comfortable enough with the character and the mythology. But I think coming off of Doctor Strange, he's very you know it, the the magic stuff, and basically kind of you know he's like he's a big fan of skeezy '70s archetypes. Which is basically what the rest of the characters in the book are, you know? So, I like I I never read Spirits of Vengeance. I always thought Spirits of Vengeance was essentially Ghost Rider and lots of knockoff Ghost Riders. Am I wrong? 
there's like different there's different names and times I think like there I think there was a Spirits of Vengeance like the mo- the most recent iteration might have been that but back in the 90s it was I think the same sort of idea Ghost Rider from back when he was big and then they tie they generally they sort of tend to tie up all the mystical heroes like I think that's what the classic 90s Spirits of Vengeance was it was just it was well, Doctor Strange it, it, and okay. Ghost Rider and a bunch of you know all the mystic I, I, dudes. I honestly thought I honestly thought it was like Ghost Rider and you know Ghost Rider Junior Kids Ghost Rider. Yeah, no. If it, it's possible that that was the they might have used that for Aaron's iteration there because the whole idea of Ghost Rider as like a avatar pun cyclical uh, uh, hero. Um, was was I don't think really it, it didn't really bust out until Aaron uh, with until I think with Aaron so you know because every Marvel character is a legacy character now oh, we are no. like we are like a year away from having Squirrel Girl nineteen fifty nine oh God written and drawn by Howard Chaikin that's like that just makes everything retract doesn't it oh. <laughs> I'm tell you. Um, okay what what are the other new titles uh, Marvel two and one right. Which, um, I guess looks like a Fantastic Four book with the two members of Fantastic Four who are left. Definitely the variant cover is the thing in the Human Torch. Yeah. Um, I, I, what's funny is literally the day before that, that was announced, uh, Axel Lonto put out a preview image of the thing with his belt mm-hmm. and it had the, the Fantastic Four logo, but it said two. Yeah. And lots of people were like, um, Mar- it's Marvel 2 and 1. Mm-hmm. And Al Collins and I got into a conversation on Twitter, and both of us were like, the last thing I want to see from Marvel is in modern Marvel 2 and 1. Yeah, yeah. And then I like, you guys, we're doing Marvel 2 and 1. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting in that sense. If it's a Thing and Torch team-up book, um, but, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a weird... Like, it's interesting, because I saw you and Al talking about it, and it was sort of, kind of that idea of, which I thought was very sweet, in a way, is, is I, I think it might have been Elle was saying, like, yeah, you know, the original two-in-one sort of was kind of like sweet and innocent, basically, you know? And I'm like, I th- I feel like everything's sort of sweet and innocent when, when you're young, God help me, but like Marvel two-in-one, although it wasn't really done especially well you know it it was an attempt to to get the thing who sold comics who had a lot of fans like an attempt to sell more comics you know i mean as much as i enjoy bits and pieces from marvel 2 and 1 or or marvel team up um like we are i think people who are fans of it and sort of think of it as a more innocent time is really almost because the books were so shitty yeah kind of i'm not i'm not really being sarcastic about that there mm-hmm. there is a one of the things i love about marvel 2 and and i do love marvel 2 and mm-hmm. is that Honestly, it was like the book where Ron Wilson drew it, whoever was available to ink that month inked it, and the writer seemed to switch out like every month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... You know, it seemed to be like the book that no one except for Ron Wilson took seriously. Yeah. And what was funny is L said something along the lines of like, I don't just want to see it turned into like this commercial thing. 
and you know, this month it's Inferno from the Inhumans. And I'm great with that because I remember it as like, you know, this month it's Machine Man, this month right. it's Chicasa, it's American Eagle. Yes. And that was part of the, the draw for me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. its ineptness is also kind of part of the draw. Yeah. And I prefer 1970s, 1980s ineptness mm-hmm. to contemporary ineptness. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, ugh, I don't know. I'm, I'm very torn in a lot of ways because I feel like, um, I just, I feel like a dude who's too old. Like when we move into the actual talking about comics stuff, one of the things that I found, at least from picking up a lot of contemporary comics is, um, they are arguably more professional than a lot of stuff that was happening back in the seventies and eighties. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, but they're also just flat as shit. Like there's well, that's no, that's just it. They're a lot more professional, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Like in all seriousness, there's something to be said for, and this is going to sound like I'm damning with faint praise or being sarcastic. And I'm not, I mean this sincerely. There's something to be said for, a really enthusiastic amateur. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, that doesn't you know? seem like damning with faint praise at all. And I would, I would much rather have someone who is like, "Fuck yeah, I'm making a thing comic. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna put in the Sandman," than someone who's like, "Well, maybe if I stay in Marvel Two and One for six months, I'll get bumped up to an X book." Right. Well, and and the fact is, is unless you look at, you know, there there have been a few people who stepped in at two and one or team up who did seem to take it more seriously as like, this is how I pick up my paycheck for this week, I suppose. But the other thing that I think was helpful was the fact that back then people, whether, you know, through misapprehension or just didn't really care. People were creating new characters and then sort of caring about those characters. And so you would see them, you know, as they move from book to book, like bring their characters along with them is like, okay, I really want to wrap up this, this story I've been trying to tell about devil slayer for like three months. And now that I'm on Marvel two and one, I finally get the chance to wrap it up. I'll just have him one issue and then Nick Fury will come in and then I'll have the big wrap up where it's Nick Fury, devil slayer and red Sonia, you know, teaming up with the exactly. exactly. Or, you know, I want to finish the story, but I can't think of a good way to do it. I'll, my guess there will be Mr. Fantastic. Right. And like some random experiment will just have him involved. Yeah. Right. And of course, that's why the thing's there. And it really was like amazingly shoddy. The other thing was for quote unquote classic Marvel 2 and 1, um, you had guys like Mark Grunewald's work on it or Bill Mantlo. I was going to say like those, and those were the guys like Grunewald and Machio both took parts of Marvel 2 and 1 very seriously. Right. But Bill also, Mantlo, Chris Claremont on over on Marvel Team Up. Team you up know. Yeah. And seem to have uh, simultaneously a respect for the concept and an idea of how to make it fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see who's doing Marvel 2 one. I genuinely think it's going to be a Dan Slot book. Mm. So we'll see what happens. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean... He, he, he could do, like, Slot or Al Ewing would be my choice for 2 one book. Sure, sure. So, you know, if either of them get it, then great. Mm-hmm. See, and I, as, as much as I want to agree with you, and admittedly I've been reading some comics where I'm like, oh yeah, I see the, the pluses and minuses or whatever. <laughs> I still have this weird thing of, 
I don't know. It, it, it is one of those deals where I, I wonder the extent to which Marvel seems to have no moves left for me because I've literally had read, have I've not read them all the way through the past 40 plus years, but. No, but you've, you've kind of been around to see all of Marvel's moves. To, to see a lot of it. Well, and the, and the fact is, is that Marvel's moves have really narrowed in a, in a lot of ways, you know, because it is a little bit of the, you're really not going to see, um, a lot of new characters. You're, you're going to see a, a trickle of, you know, officially created or editorial mandated characters, you know, but it's not really like this weird thing where someone walks in the door and is like, oh my God, I've always wanted to tell this story about this half zombie, you know, cyborg that I have from the future. You know, it's, it's, I, I feel like those things have changed. I feel like the people who break in on this stuff break in with this sort of awareness that either A, they really want to tell Spider-Man stories or I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know. I just don't, part of me is kind of, that's the other thing is, is in the middle of something like Marvel two and one, you see people being shed all the time on those titles in part because they did jump to some other book pretty much as fast as they could. And at least for me, when I was reading Marvel, Marvel was kind of constantly expanding. It seems from, you know, uh, roughly the time they had their title limitation taken away from them, you know, almost more or less well into the 80s, you know, and now I I don't want 51 titles. I mean, you know, I would not be buying again. all of them. Right, 52. Because, again, Marvel just cannot drop the poking at DC, which right. I think is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, which again is just this idea that there really doesn't seem like there's anything that's changed about Marvel. And I, and what I think is fascinating about change and the comics industry is how loaded, at least the, the American superhero comics industry, is how loaded the concept of change really is. You know, mm-hmm. we want it, but we don't want it. And there was a period where, and I just, I don't think that it's, you know, honestly, there are times where I really do wish that I cared more about the Valiant universe. Cause I look around, I'm like, oh, they keep moving their characters forward. They keep swapping people out. I mean, there's a couple of consistent names that are on there, but it seems like they bring in new artists and they keep trying to get, you know, at least some writers in there that, you know, is like, I don't know. I just, I, I, I feel, I just feel like Marvel is, what's weird is this strange way in which they refuse to just quote unquote play the hits and they're like more or less insisting that they are or will be any minute now. But I think the other thing that's just really weird about Marvel is, is that they keep doing the same things over and over again and expecting better results. Different results. Yeah, yeah. you know? Well, what's super weird for me about Marvel Legacy is that it seems so purposefully backwards looking. I mean, I read you the email that they sent out the day before the animated gifts. Right. Which makes a big point of like, we're honoring our past. We're looking towards the past. We're hearkening back to the past. The name itself, Legacy. Yeah, all about the past. Although, the isn't it ty- also about the future? I mean, I think one of our readers it's, pointed that out in a thread. 
I, uh, leaving sure. a legacy for the next sure. generation. Sure. But when I hear legacy, I think of the past more than I think of the future. Uh huh. Put it that way. Okay. Um, the title rollouts with animated gifs of old artwork. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so strange to me that this rollout is really just like, you guys, remember the good times? Yeah. Remember the good times, you guys? Come on, do, do you remember? Do you remember when you liked us? It's so absolutely fucking weird. Yeah. I, 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 I'm really curious as to what's gonna happen. I'm really curious about how Legacy's gonna land. Um, how it's going to be accepted. Just everything about it seems like such a bad idea right now. Mm-hmm. But that, you know... You know what? It, more than anything, you, it reminds me of the new 52. Like, it really does remind me of DC. Oh, that's so funny. I was thinking of the new 52 with the sort of... There was something about the role... Well, frankly, the fact that this feels like a rollout that they decided had to happen really quickly. No one's really prepped. And there's as much bluffing and bullshit as there is actual genuine stuff stuff there. And maybe not even as much as with the DC's New 52, which is kind of terrifying when you think about it, you know? Right? It's, yeah. it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, more than anything, Marvel Legacy gives me the feel of the New 52. Mm-hmm. And that's really not good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think anyone would look back at the new Fifty Two and be like, "Oh, that worked." Well, I mean, that's not true. It worked for like a year. But that's if that's that, what that's what months. that's what Marvel. How long term does Marvel think? And the answer to that seems to be not very. Like they'll be happy to buy themselves a year because that's that's all they're that's pretty much all they've been used to thinking of, except in this weirdo five year plan. You know, that was, uh, you know, David Gabriel, like, taking a PowerPoint slide and, like, duping it eight times and then changing the names of the characters that were dying and getting or going evil on each slide and being like, yep, there's our eight-year plan. You know, it's it's that a year sounds glorious to them because they're thinking, hoping that they'll have either they'll have because unlike DC... Marvel is kind of half convinced, like, yeah, if we we'll just reboot in a year anyway. They're not; they never think of anything with long-term consequences. So the idea that they're doing something now with like absurdly short-term consequences feels like they're really stretching themselves. You know what I mean? Like, they're they're like finally doing their homework on the bus on the way to school instead of at lunch before the class itself. They're thinking they're pretty hot at this point. Oh really? Because I, I get I get the the very opposite. I get this as being like not even doing the homework but copying off of someone's someone else's homework on the way to class. I, I don't I'm not saying that that's I'm not saying like, considering what they were doing before, it seems like a huge improvement either way. Whichever homework related metaphor we're going to take here. They're like, look at this. I'm finally actually turning in my homework. You know, it's not and it's I just think it's I think it's way too late for that. The problem is is they sowed a lot of seeds for a long time and it's going to I think it's going to be a while before they reap any sort of 
before that's going to change. And honestly, I don't know what that's going to take. I frankly think that retailers would probably be happier to see people out at Marvel, you know, in a way that wait, out of Marvel isn't fired. You, you yeah, people are... yeah. I, I'm thinking. I'm thinking at this point that that honestly, it would. I, I not that I'm paying any attention, but considering how often re, you've heard various retailers call for Dan DiDio to be removed, you know, right up until the new Fifty Two, where they're like, ah, this is it. He's run it into the ground. He's not going to turn this around. I I'm sure. I was going to say right up until rebirth. <laughs> well, but no, but see, that's it. Every time DiDio resets the clock. You know, and and he's managed to reset the clock four or five times now, which is pretty impressive. But I don't know. I don't I'm not paying attention if people are turning around being like Axel Alonso has to go or David Gabriel nope. has to go. No, nope. I don't but think anyone's I, saying I, that. No, no, I don't think so. Well, that's just it. We, we I think we had this conversation off mic last week. Mm-hmm. But um, when you think about like the 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 Marvel digital sale at Amazon. Mm hmm. Where like books were like a dollar, trades were a dollar. Yeah. Where were the retailers losing their shit? Right. Like, oh, where, well. where was that? Well, that's different though. I don't know if we were talking about this because as far as I'm, let's put it this way. I think potentially to their detriment, retailers are convinced that digital is dead. Like people can do whatever the fuck they want with digital and it does not affect them at all, which is weird if you think about it. Because here we are, people are saying, like, people are literally saying, like, Marvel sales are in the toilet. You know, I know, and everyone who listens to this podcast knows that for $60 a year, you can read all the Marvel comic books that you want six months behind and never have to go into a comic book store and buy a Marvel comic again. Again, Right. And yet no one has turned around and said that Marvel Unlimited is the reason why Marvel's uh, sales are in the toilet. Nobody is saying that at all because no one thinks that that's the case. And I'm assuming that it's not. But when you ask people why, the conversation just sort of goes from – I mean it's hard for me because where I shop at Comics Experience – Hibbs has some very strong views on digital. He has some very strong views on San Francisco and what's happening with the economics there. And I'm not necessarily sure if he thinks that his reasons match up for the rest of the rest of the retailers. You know, everyone just seems to take it as fait accompli that Marvel readers are leaving the market because they've been driven away because it's just a number of jumping off points and they keep being promised changes that never really seem to happen. And their storylines tend to basically sour you on the characters. Those are absolutely all really valid points. But the fact also remains there's a service out there that for $60 means you never have to walk into a comic book store and buy a Marvel comic again. The fact that that service has been in process for several years now and Marvel's been in a downspin in the sales in the direct market for several years now, nobody seems to think that that's the case. Like, and it's, and probably, I guess it's not, but it's weird. Like, that never comes up. And like I said, but that's just like, why do these things not come up? Like, I, I genuinely do want to know why people why retailers were not upset that you could buy a trade that came out like two weeks ago 
Because Marvel owns at least this is a six-month gap. And Marvel's always made the argument that it's not cannibalizing print sales because the, the fan wants it now. Right. But the Amazon sale has stuff that came out, like, last fucking week. Right. And it was, like, a dollar. Yeah, well, two like, dollars or wait, three dollars. Yeah, no, no. No, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, a $20 book... Yeah. For three dollars is yeah. an insane saving. I got the entire Why? conspiracy for less than two copies of Right? Yeah, yeah. Then then what then two the, issues the of issue. the entire crossover. Yeah. But so where were the people like where was anyone saying anything other than what the fuck is happening? Because all the only response I saw where was what the fuck is happening, And Oh my god, I can get so many comics for no money. Well, sure, because because where, and again, where, like where you said, retailer. Where were the retailers? Like, you're cannibalizing my sales. Well, because you know that if DC did that, someone would say that. You know that if any other publisher did that, mm-hmm. actually, that's not true. Like Dark Horse could do it, and no one would even notice. Yeah, well, see, I think but that's like, it. Yeah, I but think Marvel is big. Right? Yeah, Marvel is big. Well, but again, so this is the thing. I mean, is also the received wisdom. When I say the, when I say all this gabbity goo about Marvel Unlimited and no one seems to believe it, there's lots of reasons why. And part of that may be, I don't know if the people at Marvel are talking, but the people at DC are talking. And what the people at DC say is, is that comics, you know, digital sales expanded for three or four years, then they stopped, and now they seem to have plateaued and or gone down, and they are approximately 10% of the direct marketplace sales. So the so the retailers are not worried about this. They're like, you are not taking, like this Amazon sale is not taking 10% of my, you know, sales away because those are the people who are buying shit on digital, you know? And honestly, again, Marvel was doing a sale that they did not advertise in any way. And like you said, they were books that came out the week before, but they were trades. If they were selling day and date digital comics for 99 cents, then you would have heard the retailers. And I'm serious. You would have heard the retailers lose their shit. Also, it's worth keeping in mind, the retailers also already lost a portion of this fight with DC and, you know, some sort of uneasy piece has been made. But I think, like I said, when Hibbs was losing his shit over the fact that DC, after promising that they would not put their digital comics on sale before California uh, comic stores opened, or maybe it was East Coast stores, East Coast stores opened, the fact that they started being sold on at Amazon at like twelve oh one AM. Um they they lost that fight. They lost the fight. They were furious at it because they felt DC betrayed them, but they, they didn't feel like they lost any sales, you know? And I think that's the other thing. And that's again that's it's so so is what you're saying basically like Marvel uh retailers have never trusted Marvel, so there's no betrayal. Well, there's like, actually like, a lot the, of that. Yeah, I think the there's upset, a lot of that. The upset has never really been about sales. It's always been about, I thought you were on our side. I thought you were on our side. But again, the point, uh, my point is, is that that's for day and date digital comics. I think, I think the trades thing is a whole screwy mess. Like you hear stories about comic stores 
that barely carry trade paperbacks. You know, there there's apparently still some of those in business. You know, so I don't think. Don't get me wrong. The trade thing at through Amazon was a weird, weird thing. But I don't, I don't know if the retailers. Some of the retailers were, were like, "Hey, if it gets people interested in buying books and brings people into the bookstore," because that was part of what they saw when digital was when digital was growing is is that sales in the direct marketplace were growing as well you know it was very much is when you started hearing a few more articles about the quote unquote napster effect started coming back in i think so i i think i think retailers have a very weird process about digital they don't know at first it was the enemy now it's kind of vaguely a frenemy, but the fact is, is it doesn't seem to dip into their pockets nearly half as badly as Marvel running around saying that it's got a new, like, quote-unquote legacy slash reboot with no details, a lot of the same creators, all of the same titles, you know... I don't think they're like, how are we supposed to sell this? There's nothing that you can, there's, there's no, it's, it's, a, there's no hook there apart from a company that has proved, proven time and time again that you cannot trust them going, no, 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 trust us. You know, it's just, it's not, I, I, I don't know. I just don't see that that is, but, but at the same time, there's always been this reluctance to call Marvel on its shit. Well, Okay, so that's that's kind of what I wanted to come back to. Yes. Do you think this is the time? Do you think if this fails, then Marvel is going to get called in the shit? Do you think people are going to say, it's time for Alonso to go, it's time for uh, Gabriel to go, it's time for Braveheart to go? Or do you think they're just going to be like, it's fucking Marvel, what can you do? Well, I think honestly, probably closer to the latter than the former. You know? Like, but... And that's, that is just this weird thing that I find incredibly strange about Marvel is, is that I feel, I feel like Joe Casada put himself out there to the point where you could see fans being like, yeah, casada has got to go. And I felt like you could even hear that from retailers. But for whatever reason, I, my personal feeling is, is that everyone is aware that like nobody's, nobody's sure who's running the Marvel ship. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure they're like, yeah, you, you should get rid of Axel Alonso. But is Axel Alonso really who's calling these shots? Like, you know, like, I don't know if anyone really believes that. The sales and marketing team should go. Like, I, I'm impressed. I feel like when I read Marvel Comics when I was growing up, I heard more about Mike Catron, the publisher, than I've ever heard about Dan Buckley. Ever and Buckley's been around for what you know a decade and a half now. You know, mm -hmm. I don't. That, that's interesting. I would say that Buckley is actually relatively visible. He, is he? Yeah, I genuinely would say he's. I would say he's as visible as 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 previous publishers, I with the exception of like Jameis. But you know, yeah. he, he was an outlier in so many respects. Right. Well, who who was the publisher? Was was it um, what's his dingle? Who was who was the uh, who was the guy who got the hit? Was he um, who was editor? Yeah, sorry, no. Who I'm trying to think like who's the there's the X Men editor who ended up at DC who was editor in chief. 
Um, but who was, who well, was, Paris. yeah, who was, who was publisher during Harris's regime? Do you remember? I, uh, no, not, not in the slightest, but was that not the, I mean, that was the nineties. That was when, that was when Marvel's, you know, Marvel's leadership was ever changing. Right. You know, and I, I, I sort of say it with somewhat tongue in cheek, but in all seriousness, like it, that, that was a really weird time. According to Wikipedia, uh, Marvel's publisher at that point was someone called Winston Folks. Wow. Jarrell Rhodes uh, from 96 to 98, and then Winston Folks from 98 to 99. Wow. Yeah. Get this. Stan Lee was officially publisher through 96. Really? Wow. They kept him on. I knew he. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Well. All I can say is, Graham, uh, I don't, I don't know. I honestly, I mean, I could be wrong because of course I am really, really out of touch, but I do not have, I don't have a real strong sense that people know what it would take to, to get people out at Marvel. Cause for better or for worse, despite Alonzo, I don't know, is Alonzo still doing shit at CBR? I don't even think he's doing that. No, he? no, not for, not for like at least a year. Yeah, a year or so. So I don't really know that they're, you know, for, Better or for worse, uh, you know, the Dio, Lee, and Johns have put themselves out in front of the audience, uh, pretty continuously there for, for, you know, at least for the last two, three years, you know? I don't know. I, I would say the Dio's been putting himself out there for much longer. Yeah, pretty much since he arrived. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I think he's, I think that's something that he does and clearly, I mean, you know, again, he may not be his own best representative, uh, at times or at least in certain aspects, but, uh, I don't know. I, uh, Graham, I, I think, I think Marvel is, (laughs) I think Marvel is doing some scary stuff, but considering that right now I feel like we live in scary times, I have no idea how to be like, I'm like, let, let, I don't know how to be unscared. I don't know. I, yeah, kind of like uh, on the whole, uh, the whole cusp of we don't, we, I think we've made a point not to, to bring our politics or our, our, I think it's been nice to sort of make the podcast. Did you say we've, be made, a, we've made our cusp not to bring politics. I think we've brought politics into this podcast a lot. I was going to say, I think since the first few months of the start of the year, I feel like at least for myself, I was like, you know what? The world can be really depressing. I kind of feel like it's the idea. Someone asked that we sort of make this uh, podcast a little more of a safe space. space. And I'm kind of, I'm into that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably a great idea to be honest. Yeah. I, I do too, but I do have to say there are times where I'm just like watching Marvel blow itself up is a little alarming because of what's going to happen, what might happen to the direct market. But part of me is like, in terms of the list of things that are currently seem to be in the process of blowing <laughs> themselves up. Exactly. This, this is nothing. Yeah. Marvel may not crack the top 10. I, only because I'm too terrified to make a list. Do I actually know whether or not that that's true? Is there other comic news that you, I mean, the thing that's also crazy that I'm like, yeah, we should also move along because we last time you and I talked for a Baxter building, we were like, "Holy shit, we both read so many comics." And I kind and of now, like this week. I'm not, I I honestly, the comics I read are lots of Judge Dreads mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, 
something called I think it's called the Sabrina Classic Comics Collection, the Archie set, wow. which is like 400 pages of the first Sabrina comics. Hmm. Which Jeff, let me tell you, is the greatest toilet comic. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Big with me. No, 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 I got it. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're just like, I want to read like a four-page story that is not going to, you know, threaten me in any way. Yes. And get to like, I mean, those original Sabrina comics, Jeff, are so fucking great. Mm-hmm. In large part because it is old men's idea of what a teenager is in 1961. <laughs> and I shit you not, Bob Haney looks like an amateur. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's I'm sure. It's amazing. It's astounding stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and also, you know, just some great fucking cartooning. Right. Right. You know, you Dan DiCarlo in his prime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some fucking amazing artwork in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's actually – I would say that's actually been my favorite comics I've read this week. <laughs> Classic Sabrina. Ah. Take it or leave it, you guys. That's what I've been enjoying. Uh, although I, I do want to give one specific particular shout out, and I put this on the wait what Tumblr already. Mm-hmm. The Tony Bedard Ben Caldwell backup for Wonder Woman Tasmanian Devil is fucking astounding. Oh oh shit! What is it? It's but it was but so the DC Looney Tunes comics. I don't know if you've seen any of them. I have there, seen the comics. There's a main story. Mm-hmm. That's done in, you know, DC artwork. And then there's a backup, essentially retelling the same story, but it's shorter and it's done in Looney Tunes artwork. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Which is a nice idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the worst one by far is the Legion Bugs Bunny one, because that is literally just a straight retelling of the plot. Mm-hmm. Everything else deviates significantly, but that one is just a straight retelling. Right. Uh, but the, so Tony Bedard and Barry Kitson do the, the DC version of Wonder Woman, Tasmanian Devil. And it's it's cute, it's fine, mm-hmm. but the backup is Bedard in his full-on KFC comic style. Mm, God, and Ben Caldwell mm-hmm. of Prez fame doing like eight pages, and it ends with a rhyme. It ends with Wonder Woman and uh, Tasmanian Devil singing the entire uh, synopsis in in rhyming couplets. And they rhyme rectal with bechtel, as in bechtel test. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is glorious. Wow. This is fucking insane. Yeah. Hmm. All, all of, all of those comics actually so far have turned out to be super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the Legion one is so amazingly disrespectful to Legion, but I can't help but love it. There is a point where the number of cat like captions, you know, asterisks, you know, see Legion issue seventy two, see Legion issue thing. Like there's like ten of them. They're just constantly self referring. <laughs> and there's a lot of like uh n- you know, thought balloons angst mm-hmm. where characters are self referentially talking about how they're you know, I I I'm so driven by angst right now. I can't stop myself because of the angst. And then another character will have a thought balloon being like, if you think you're angst-ridden, I am more angst-ridden than you. <laughs> Which is fucking great. <laughs> fucking great. Oh. Uh, you know, the Lobo Roadrunner cartoon mm-hmm. is exactly what you think it's going to be with fucking Kelly Jones art. Right. I saw some of the pages from that. Like, and... what? what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Kelly Jones drawing Wile E. Coyote is kind of insane. Like, whoever thought that that 
that that should be done, I really have to give them credit because holy fuck. And it's it's but it's literally a Roadrunner cartoon. Mm-hmm. It's like it's literally Lobo being like, "This will stop him," <laughs> and then Roadrunner appears and goes beep beep, and then something terrible happens to Lobo. <laughs> and then heals and he's like, you know, fetal's gaze. This will stop him. And then something ter- that's it. That's the entire fucking comic. <laughs> oh um, man. The one I haven't gotten, I actually get sent a PDF and I just haven't had a chance to read it, is Batman Elmer Fudd. Oh shit. Uh, that is the one that I think I'm actually gonna read. Yeah. Yeah, you know that's going to be like absolutely amazing. Uh but no, all of them have turned out to be surprisingly fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what are the other ones that that? Uh... Oh, Martian Man with her Marvin the Martian was almost touching. Wow, really? Right. <laughs> well, of course, if you think about it, both of them are the last Martians. Uh... Like that's their gimmick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the the plot is Marvin the Martian is from like another planet in the multiverse, mm-hmm. and he arrives and he's like, "Oh my God, you're another Martian!" But then because it's the comic, it is. He's like, "I must now teach you to destroy humanity." Right. Right. Like, this is what you have to do. And right. Mark Manager's like, no, 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 no. What? No, this is not what I want to do. I want to help them. And he's like, no, you're wrong. We are Martians. We, we have to destroy Earth. Uh, speaking of both destroying Earth and cartoons, what did you think of, uh, what did you think of the last issue of the Flintstones? I loved it. I did too. I was really, that was also one that I was touched by. That I thought yeah, was it's, really it's interesting. The, the, the bowling ball um, mm-hmm. thing is, is just like genuinely heartbreaking. Yeah. The bowling ball one actually was incredibly touching to me. Uh, but honestly, the fact that I, I really do like that Russell set up the early part of the story where Pebbles and Bam Bam basically go to the, to Carl Sagan and he explains what science is and how important it is. And you're like, oh, okay, we're going to end on that note for that. That's great. And then he, he actually has a follow-up page in which uh, the the religious dudes talk about the importance of religion, too, in a way that yeah. also works. And, yeah. and, and invent God yeah, in the process. It, right, 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 right. Yeah, so... Which is, which is a great and lovely little visual gag to completely play off of what they're talking about because they, they're legitimately talking about the importance of faith mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and then you have this cheap but funny guy that god comes around because they didn't have enough space to write gordo yes right and so they shorten it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um, but it, it's it, it was it really was remarkably touching and it's mm-hmm. it's been a series that all throughout has been touching when you least expect it yeah you know, and, and deep when you least expect it. Mm-hmm. But it really was, I'm not joking, like the, the bowling ball, like the, the scenes where, where oh, they're yeah. just, like, like, that was, that was too much for me. That really was. I was like, oh, you fucker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause, cause Pew, I mean, really, who's just did stellar work all throughout the series, everything related to bowling ball subplot, the, the, his, drawing of the various anthropomorphic animals is just is heart is heartbreaking is really just um very uh i i i like how much the flintstones subverted their subversiveness i guess you know and used it as a as a backdoor to 
genuinely, genuinely direct cartooning, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, um, yeah. and, and that, that really did end up being, um, enjoyable to me. I, it really what, is that what, book. What was, what was great about that book ultimately was you went into it with an expectation and then it subverted that expectation really quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, to be like, no, no, this is a much deeper book than you think. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about things you don't think we're going to be talking about, and we're going to be really smart about it. Mm-hmm. But also, once that was established, it did suffer that again. And be like, we're not afraid to make dumb jokes as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not afraid to be the cartoony book. And what, yeah, it, 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 was, it was, ended up being very bold, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And continually so. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really was. Uh, just, just, yeah, I, I was, I was very, very struck by how touched I was by issue 12 and kind of how much I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss that book. I know that, that Russell's moving on to attack Doggy Daddy, uh, and th- I think that'll be a great read, but I'm, <laughs> but Snagopus, I'm, all, come on. Oh, oh sorry, Snagopus, right, Doggy Daddy's the thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. A little brain dead. I'm like, that's not right for some reason, so. Uh, exit stage left because that is the perfect name for a comic about him being a communist playwright in the 1950s. <laughs> uh, oh, fuck. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, it's um, genius. Uh, Graham, I, I have to tell you about something that I feel a lot of conflict have in, or rather a handful of books that I felt very conflicted about, um, in the hopes that I, we can discuss them. Yes, please do. Okay, so I'm gonna, st- I'm actually going to start with the one that, f- that is possibly the longer conversation, um, uh, which I feel like should actually technically come second, but fuck it. During the course of our se- past several weeks, thanks to the miracle of Hoopla, I checked out, uh, digitally the first two volumes of, of, uh, King's Batman. I am Gotham and I am Suicide. Yeah. And between that, the uh, marriage proposal issue of Batman, the Brave in the Mold, and the Bathound story, which I finally read, I'm very, I'm more hand wringy about King's Batman run than less so. Like, uh, okay, why? Because I, I, I already have theories, but I want to hear your explanation. Okay, so part of me feels like, like, <laughs> uh, the, the thing that I sometimes get frustrated about for myself is, is that when it's, when something works for me in one context and then it completely is, I don't want to say the same thing, but is an updated version of the thing and should work and therefore isn't, uh, and doesn't. As you, as, as listeners know, um, I am a huge booster. We're both huge boosters of Bob Haney's Brave and the Bold. And I remember very specifically in the, was it the Batman? It was the first issue of, of Batman, of I Am Gotham. Uh, we talked about how Haney-esque uh, pieces of that story w- were, was in a, in a good way. So... So the thing that bothers me is, is the idea that King is in looking at, I haven't read all of it, but a huge chunk of the 24 issues, 25 issues that I've read. King in some ways is 
doing a very Haney-esque take on Batman. And yet, I love it with Bob Haney, and I, most of the time, find it kind of weirdly... I don't want to go all the way to disdainful or abhorrent, but I find, <laughs> but I find it, I don't, it, I think it's accurate to say that I don't trust it. King arguably is trying to craft a Batman that sort of in the same way that we see in the Brave and the Bold, Haney's Batman is a surprisingly human person it, it you know in in a very ridiculous campy sort of sense of the term but like yeah. there really isn't anyone that you could picture in many ways being as out there as to have you know essentially batman get knocked out drown in a well and end up having to sell his soul to the devil to get out of there and then afterwards be haunted and freaked out by the appearance of this shadowy figure you know, or the situation That's where... so interesting. You went there for his Haney's humanity. Well... Because for me, Haney's humanity comes from, like, the Batman digs the stainless. Yes. And the fact that, like, Batman was emotion emotionally vulnerable in good ways. No, I agree. Uh, Batman was emotionally vulnerable across the board. Like you said, in that, like, yes, I'm digging that day. Hey, pretty mama, you know, kind right. of thing. Yeah, but that, also. That, yeah. Yeah. But also, how do I put it? There's something when you've got Batman cowering before a little boy who's his godson who he suspects has been possessed by a demon that you're kind of like, what the fuck is this? I mean, the, the like Batman who's snapping his fingers being like, Hey, you have a great day or like, what? You know, Commissioner Gordon, it's time, your time is past. It's tough, buddy. Wait, what the fuck? I'm being replaced with the metal men. What the fucking shit? You know what I mean? Like, so I feel that a case could be made that King is trying to take a a view of Batman and opening him up to a wider emotional range in which that emotional range is also someone who is quite consciously grappling with whether or not he is appropriately processing his grief, which is as someone who's uh, experienced grief and loss in my life, really resonant and feels very like on point to me. And so the range in which you see Batman moving from more or less willing to kill himself to save Gotham and to have a good death that his parents would respect in issue one to proposing marriage to Selina Kyle because all, everything that he has encountered has slowly brought him to the area that he needs to make a life for himself mm-hmm. um, is is laudable and semi-resonant. There's points where it leaves me cold and every once in a while it work, it will curtwang something in a way that I find um, profound. And yet, the part that bothers me is the way in which I feel that um, King has 
a lot of contempt for either Batman or Batman comics. Um, huh. Why? I like ha- that, that's, that's genuinely surprising to me because I would say just the opposite. Uh, okay. Then I think you and I have two very different views of... Well, it's, it's also worth remembering. You're much more of a Bat fan than I am. I, much more. Well, exactly. So that might be part of why, like, part of me could be, um, uh, overly sensitive to the point of professional paranoia. And King would be like, no, 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 no. I love Batman. And it could also be, and this is, I think, worth, um, threading into the conversation, the idea that King is writing two issues of Batman, you know, a fucking month has been doing that for a year while also working on, I one would assume, other projects, right? So, but that being said, um, the part in I Am Suicide where Batman basically walks around and says, you know, Bane, you're going to give me the blah, blah, psycho pirate or I'm going to break your damn neck, right? He says that for an entire fucking issue and it's really stupid. And the follow-up in which Bane comes back to Gotham and spends most of his time basically yelling, I am Bane, and then smashing things. And then Batman sort of big rejoinder is, I am Batman, is um really fucking stupid. And I don't think... <laughs> It's really stupid, and I don't think, and that's what bothers me, is King is not himself a stupid dude. There is something that really does feel contemptuous in it, to me. That's really interesting. I do not get contemptuous at all. For me as a reader, I actually got a lot out of the I Am Suicide arc. Mm -hmm. And I think that that the I Am Bane arc just didn't work for me. Um, I, I think there was a lot of, I think there's a lot of depth in I Am Suicide, and there just isn't in I Am Bane. I think you're, I, I actually agree with you. Not that it's contemptuous, but I think that I Am Bane is ultimately kind of a dumb story. Like, it, it, it felt weirdly unnecessary, and, you know, I kind of get why he did it when he did it, but it also felt too soon. It felt like, you know, I thought we just had a Bane story. Why are we having another Bane story? He's not doing anything new with Bane. And again, there's bits I like in it. I like the, uh, the, every, all the Robins in the fast food joint. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it. I, there's things I like, but as a whole, I don't like I Am Bane. I Am Suicide, though, I think is, is, but I, 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 part of me is just like, how can you find that contemptuous? Like, there, there's so much, interesting stuff going on in there there's the the issue long you know double page reds lots of monologue where batman talks about depression and trying to kill himself stuff yes because which which i thought which i thought was amazing yeah yeah, right amazing right you know and so i'm like i i really do have a how like why do you find that contemptuous because i because i don't find those parts contemptuous but those parts are the parts that are um, it's almost as if like Tom King is kind of the flip side of every other Batman writer that's ever walked in the door where he's like, I think that Bruce Wayne is the most interesting person in the world and I could give a shit about Batman. And you know what I mean? Like to him, 
like he separates the two things out. The stuff with Selena Kyle and Bruce, the even even a lot of the chunk of things that are set up with the you know, the heist element of of I am suicide, you know, is is interesting in a nuts and bolts pieces kind of way. But that's precisely my point. I am Gotham has had almost purposely throws in two big characters that you can sort of pivot away from the Batman-ness of Batman. And then, you know, you're sort of like, oh, okay, I'm going to sort of talk about what it means to be Batman by refracting it through these two characters. And those two characters actually really do bring out the the idea that, that there's the loss and the grieving. The stuff that happens in I Am Su- Suicide, the part that's resonant is, and it's again, King doing what I think is going to become his patented move, which is taking the um, fragility of comic book continuity as it exists now and using that as a way to talk about the fragility of emotional memory, which is really is absolutely as wonderful as you said for the Selena Bruce romance. But the parts of Batman that are Batman, like quote unquote, like, oh, I'm putting on my cape and cowl and I'm going to go out and stop a mugger. I'm going to stop a gang. I'm going to fight Bane. I'm going to deal with the Joker. Like all of that stuff. I feel like King actively has contempt for it. And like I said, I just don't think, I don't see how you can be like, yeah, I think the idea that, that Batman saying the same thing over and over and over again for an entire <laughs> issue, you see what I'm saying? Like just well, the yeah, fact that you laugh at that. That's not like. No, but what's super interesting to me is like you're explaining and I totally see what you're saying. But for me, I'm like, yeah, but I, and again, this might be because I haven't read as many Batman comics as you. And honestly, I don't care as much about Batman as a character as you do. Mm-hmm. But I am, I am on board for the emotional journey that King is taking Bruce Wayne, right? And that if that means that the Batmanness falls to the 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 background, I'm okay it's with that. It's not the background. But, uh, it's not. See, that's my problem. It's not the background. It is. It's I, actively I the crapper. I, but I don't see actively the crapper. I honestly don't see the disdain that you do. And I completely respect that you do. Again, mm-hmm. you're much more of a fan of the characters than I am. Well, okay, but see, here's the thing. Like, we're talking about the, you, you're kind enough to say the character. And this is one of the things that gets really weird about, um, it's sort of, it's sort of like when Tom King talks about, like, doing the vision, which is an amazing book. And he talks about how, you know, he had, the editors asked him, like, well, what about the vision? He's like, oh my god, he's my favorite character. And of course, you know, in true freelancer fashion, he's like, I didn't really give a shit about the vision. But then I started reading him, seeing what I could do in the story that I could tell. I feel that, that King's like, I've got a great story to tell about loss and grieving and, hope and about oh no where the rest of it is i suspect after hope fails and what's left afterwards and that's fine but i think that so like you said that is character and i think that that king is interesting taking an aspect of 
the character and exploring that element. And that is an element that draws a lot of writers. And it's interesting that King is going in a place that's the same, but slightly different. What the thing is, is that when you say like when the weird part is part of me is like, no, I mean, I also like Batman. You know what I mean? Kind of the way that Chip Kid talks about like liking Batman. And I'm not really sure. I'm sure that he would turn around wait. and be like, oh, I love Tom King's run on Batman. But I wait, have a but, sneaky but what, suspicion. What do you mean like you like Batman? Like you like Batman as what? Well, I think that's kind of the question. I mean, is I'm, I would have to say I like Batman as Avenger of the Night, as guy who drives a cool car, as but not, guy who not jumps as, out of the thing. Not as a character. No, not no, no, as no, no, a character. No. I, I like them both, but if you're going to take one and, like I say, shit on the other, it makes me very suspect about either your motives or kind of the way – like, it's that weird thing of if I was a super fanboy, I'd be like, yeah, Tom King's just putting on airs and making it seem like he's better than Batman. And I don't think that that's – I love how you're like, I'm not saying that, but I am saying he's crapping on him. <laughs> Well, no, he is crapping on the character, but whether or not that that is with the goal of he just doesn't think that Batman is. I think it. I think it is a little bit of the. It 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 leaves a bit of a bad taste in my mouth because again, like it feels it feels very different from from how good old Bob Haney would do it. You know what I mean? Like he's like King is like yeah, I want to bring this person out. As an emotional character, and I, I want to point out how absurd the rest of it is. And in fact, I think there's a point where, in one of the Batman issues, where Bruce is jumping around as Batman, being like, yes, this is, this is absurd. This is fucking absurd. The idea that I'm doing this as a way to handle grief is ridiculous. Yeah, I, jumping it's, around that, as a that, bat that is, is fucking ridiculous. That is the I am suicide, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's toward the end, the the maybe the two part bit on I am suicide. Yeah, but yeah, um, it's it strikes me as an after the fact justification. I don't know. I just I kind of have that thing where I'm like, yeah, I don't. I I think that Tom King is telling a really interesting story, literally at the expense of Batman. That's. Um, that's fascinating, and I honestly, I'm like, oh, don't read the book, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, I mean, like, I, I don't know what to say beyond that because sure. I don't, I genuinely don't agree with you, right? But no, I totally I, get it. Like, yeah. it's completely, it's completely right. valid that you think that. Sure. But at the same time, also, it's fucking Batman. Like, Batman will be fine. Well, of course he'll be fine. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure, sure, sure. you know, there, it's not like Tom King can break Batman because. Nobody can break Batman. Yeah. The essential Batmanness of Batman will always reassert itself. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think there are people who are again the way that we. Uh, one of the things that we love about Bob Haney's Batman is that too is an incarnation of Batman. You know what I mean? I just there's something that I find just, just a little, little distasteful about it. So. And the flip side of this is reading, um, thanks to the miracle of, I actually had a physical paperback in, in hand, trade paperback, and read Doom Patrol Volume 1, Brick by Brick. Uh, Were you not reading it before? 
I was I thought you were because I read the first issue. I read the first okay. issue. Okay. I picked up the first issue on day one and read it, and I was like, "Yeah, that's um, that's that's interesting. Good slash. I don't feel like coming back for this, but maybe I'll pick up the trade." And then, thanks to the miracle of Comics Experiences Graphic Novel Club, I ended up with the trade, and I read it, and I feel like um. I feel like that is almost the flip side of the Batman run in some ways, uh, in that way, I can't tell, I feel like way is doing some really interesting work that might be more interesting if he was less respectful of Morrison's Doom Patrol, but I can't really tell if that's true or not. And I was curious mm-hmm. as to what your thoughts and things were. I, I cannot really be subjective about Doom Patrol. Mm-hmm. I could be objective about Doom Patrol, rather. Um, Doom Patrol is... Like, Doom Patrol really hits me hard a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot. And, the and you part, mean this particular run, right? The yes, way this particular run. Yeah. Okay. Um, the third issue where... Spoilers, everyone. Danny explains to Casey her origin. I... Mm-hmm. Uh, is so like it's a gut punch to me mm-hmm. it really is the the bits and it you've seen this on my twitter thing the the bit where danny says uh like you might be scared but it's okay mm-hmm. uh, like i'm here for you holy shit like almost every time thinking about it almost brings me to tears mm-hmm. uh the uh cliff and, and jane meeting again mm-hmm and Jane really purposely telling Cliff, you can't fix me. Mm-hmm. Like, I have to do this myself, and it's a process, and there's no end result. Is like, again, a complete gut punch. There, there's so many bits in that that just completely just com- demolish me entirely. Mm-hmm. I love Doom Patrol. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And that's going to be on, like, Nick Darrington's a fucking great artist. I love the way the book looks. Yes. I think the book, it's just a beautiful looking comic. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the makeup of the team. I, I think that, you know, having Cliff there not as the central character, but mm-hmm. almost as an incidental character, mm-hmm. next to, to Sam and, and Casey, is a really nice touch. Uh, I, I, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot about the comic I really like. But it's, it is one of those things that like impacts me so emotionally that I'm like, Jeff, it's just I just love it. And well, I can't good. really I can't really speak to anything beyond that. But I will say this. I talked to uh Jarway for Wired about mm-hmm. this book. And one of the things, because I was I was referencing the Marson run, he was like, Oh no, Rachel Pollock's run for me. Oh, interesting. Okay. Which is which is what I wondered, because there were a few bits and pieces, a few plot turns or things that had been mentioned that I didn't recognize and I was like is that from Rachel Pollock's run? So I was kind of curious. Uh, apparently he got in like midway through Morrison's run, mm-hmm. but like made a point of calling out Rachel Pollock's run. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, no one ever does. And I kind of wonder if he's the reason why Rachel Pollock's stuff is getting collected now. Oh, that would be great if so. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's, it's the first trades out next month, I think. Huh. They're, they're doing a couple of trades of her, her run. Oh, that's great. Um, But... Yeah, I, I I like it a lot. It's it's funny that you're like it's kind of the flip side of of King's Batman because I find both not in the same way, but both very emotional books to read. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, especially the recent Batman stuff, the the uh, the Brave and the Mold, especially. Mm-hmm. Like was you know funny, funny, haha. And then the last page, you're just like, what? Yeah, I thought. What just happened? I I thought Brave in the Mold was actually quite strong, and it had that thing of when I put down the issue, I was like, "Oh, I get it now. I see what King's going for, and it means a lot." Um, and then weirdly, I don't know. I think by the next issue, I was back to um, suspicion. I suppose. <laughs> I don't trust this. I I kind of don't, and I don't think that that's necessarily. This is why, like I said, I'm very conflicted because I think that, I think that King is trying to make readers suspicious. I think, and I think, I think that's what he wants and I think it's not a bad idea. Like I think that he wants us to look at Batman skeptically and I, I think that that's in principle, a really good idea. I just think that the way that he's the way he's going about it, yeah, is kind of is kind of mean and fucked, and I, well, and I well, don't like that. So, so talk talk to me instead about why Doom Patrol is the flip side of it. Uh, Doom Patrol. The reason why I like it is I feel that. I feel that what really struck me about Doom Patrol is there's a beautiful sequence where once you do find out uh, Roxy's origin, um, which I think is delightful, is really a delightfully great idea, kind of, of how to mm-hmm. create a character and tie it into Morrison's and Morrison's run and all of those ideas, but as a, as a very strong lineage. And then... Essentially, the one of the big climaxes of the storyline is essentially Danny hands uh, her a flamethrower, more or less, and says, you have to go back and burn down the comic book store. And I thought that that was it's kind of hilarious and wonderful and great, because I felt like Way is writing sort of a love letter to a comic series that kind of opened up and inspired him to, to the, basically this idea of like, you can just generate new ideas and new ideas and new ideas. And Doom Patrol was, seemed like when you get to that point where it's like, yes, this is the place that birthed you. Now in order to save all space and time, you have to burn it down. I thought was really funny. And of course, really funny in this, in the shape of, um, you know, it helped the that I was actually store. reading it. Yeah, I was reading it in a comic book from a trade that I published, that I got from a, a comic book store. I thought that was really, somehow really funny and inclusive in this idea that everyone involved at every stage of this really kind of got the idea that, that, that sort of like what births your ideas you also have to to honor it. You then have to turn around and surpass it. Like you really that old saw that you see going around a lot. That that if you really want to pay tribute to Jack Kirby, like go create new stuff. Don't don't write and draw the stuff that Kirby created because he was always moving forward. You know, and do that. And I love the the idea that Way sort of figured out a way to kind of have his cake and eat it 
by creating a trib a self destructing tribute, but but one that sort of self destructs in kind of a delightful fireworks effervescent kind of way, I suppose. You know, and I do love that 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 Danny the Street as this character of sheer love and acceptance is kind you know is 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 kind of right behind Morrison's All-Star Superman as like one of my favorite characters uh, as a character that is ju- that is about like kind of how essential and important that is and and how unadorned it is like the way that way uses the absurdity and the surrealism not not just for, you know, on the one hand, kind of like, yes, and you can just keep turning things out and it's very fun and funny and it's engaging, but also behind it all is, it, it's also a way to talk more directly about your feelings, which I feel yeah, is a very exactly. strong Morrisonian tack to take. He, you know? he plays up the, um, outsider aspect, I think more like mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the, uh, which is uh, very present in Doom Patrol, you know, from day one, and yes. it's very present in Morrison's Doom Patrol. Right. But I think he's he makes the subtext of the surrealism is a metaphor for not fitting in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. much more obvious. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you get to the the Jane part of it, which is people essentially giving up their their individuality. Yes. To become part of a larger whole. And then the, the Doom Patrol have to uh, not even defeat that, but reject it. Well, I, I would I would say that again, yeah, as, as an aspect of comic book creation, again, Way is saying like, don't don't turn. You know, he's he's kind of like, yeah, the temptation is you finally get the chance to become Jane or do. To, you know, to do this character that you've wanted to do for a long time. And the point of the story when he finally gets around to doing Jane in a story is, is that that's the wrong idea. You know, he literally is like that you, the, the importance of your individuality is so strong and throughout the book. All that said, I really thought that there were that there were parts that were not especially well done like i loved it i enjoyed it but i was like the new characters barely have any resonance as new characters for something that feels like it goes on oh, for really? a lot of pages yeah there's no oh no i like casey's genuinely my favorite new character in anything for the longest time interesting cuz casey doesn't feel like a character to me um casey feels like well, or I guess I should say she doesn't, she doesn't feel, uh, she, she has, she doesn't have an arc. Like there's an arc that's made up on the fly. But like when Casey starts her thing, um, the, the issues start, she's walking around, she's saying crazy stuff, crazy things are happening to her. She's sort of mildly confused about why the crazy things are happening to her, but there's not, like it's she's more like a puzzle to the reader and then as things go on you understand why she's why she is who she is or why she is how she is but 
there isn't a lot of by the time you get to her conflicts about her dad and mom it's which are in like issue three or four or whatever it's not like there's a lot of groundwork that's been laid for that like the best thing that you can say is is that her partner uh has a lot more um stuff going on about his wife who left him that then sort of gets resolved in the it's just it's just it's just not very deep is all I can say. I didn't have a really strong sense of who Larry Trainer was in this. Cliff is almost I mean, like you said, he's off to the side, but he's not really there. And the stuff with him and Jane only carries any weight for me because the because I remember the Morrison stuff. It doesn't have any weight within the body of the story itself, I don't think. There's nothing there that is that the groundwork has been laid for in the rest of the issues that make you that I think would resonate with you. It only resonates in a, in, but, as a 40 year echo or something. But is the Larry stuff not laying groundwork for later? Like part of me feels that you're making criticisms that would be more resonant if this was a, if this was just like a six issue story and done as opposed to, and the series continues. I'm just saying for six issues, you should be able to get some sort of groundwork for those characters that, that is more than what you got in six issues. Admittedly, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but I, but I just don't think that there's, like I said, for six issues, I expect a little bit more, especially because it's, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what to tell you. Like, even this, even the stuff with Larry where, where Larry starts off as the negative man being someone who has to feed off of negative emotions. And then that almost instantly gets shunted aside. Like, no sooner is that set up than you get the second part of that sequence where he's rejoined with a uh, sort of a new variation of the negative spirit and becomes uh, a character closer to the, um, you know, Morrison's original um, chrysalis uh, conception, you know, which is all fine. I mean, I, I think one could almost make the case that Morrison starts by, taking and creating characters in the first arc, deliberately flattening them out as time goes on for various effects and using them as various punchlines, and then pulling back to really emotionally gut punch you in that last arc. And, and, and as you point out, that goes over a very long run, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's, it's maybe unfair to compare the oranges of one's youth with the oranges of today, but crawling from the wreckage lays a lot more groundwork for who those characters are and what they want and who in the world than what I feel that you get out of a six issue story where my main takeaway was, was, you know, like, wow, that EMT wants his wife back. And it's really a shame that Casey's parents kind of didn't get to stay together. You know what I mean? Like that's, and it's, I, I know it, again, it's, it's your like, Jeff, go to hell. Like you do not no, understand no, anything. No, it's, it's cause it's not even go to hell. It's literally like, I got a lot more out of this than you did. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to tell you, but also part of me is like, you should really crawling from the wreckage. Cause I, I, did I not 
say this last year that I read like Morrison's Doom Patrol from start to finish again, and I was surprised by how bad it reads these days. Hmm. No, I, I. It's funny because I can't. If we, it wouldn't surprise me if you had that, and then I feel like we segued into things like Morrison's Invisibles, and you know how whether or not that still reads well or not. Because, um, but yeah, uh, no, go go uh, back yeah. into Doom Patrol. You no, you should. You should go back and read Doom Patrol because there's. Um, there really are parts that have no Israel at all. There's a lot that has, but there are parts where you're like, oh, right. oh. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you because I, I did get, I, I genuinely got a lot more out of Casey, like a lot more out of Casey than you clearly did. Mm-hmm. Um, and other thing, like I, like I said, I, I like that Cliff isn't the center. Oh no, I'm uh, fine with that as well. I, yeah, and I, I. I agree that you really kind of have to know the Morrison run and to an extent the Giffen run for the Jane stuff to work and especially the Danny stuff to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I am thinking more kindly towards it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just in a better mood because I clearly like Bat- uh, King's Batman and, and Ways to Patrol. I think than- it could be argued, Graham, and I, I'm sure everyone would offer a resounding yes, that you are a more generous reader than I am. Of this stuff, I th- oh, I, I think that's almost certainly true. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that I and by of this stuff, I mean sort of comics across the board. So, uh, <laughs> I and I do, and I think that that sort of, but there are times where I'm sort of um, vexed, I suppose. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't know if that's just the essential um burtness to my earniness but it's i'm always like but ernie it wasn't very good you know it's like i mean technically it was there were parts that i enjoy and that i like but again i i sort of feel like i don't know i i i just always constantly have to throw the the asterisk up next to it which is kind <clears> of you know it's, parts of this are great but other parts of this are uneven or like you've got to walk into it expecting a certain thing otherwise you're going to be disappointed or whatever but like i said i and and part of me is at a core of it there's something that's like but you know if you're an incredibly generous reader then doesn't that mean that we don't have to have especially good comics you know and that oh no i i i I can be an incredibly forgiving reader and i think in doom patrol's case in particular i am an amazingly forgiving reader because it does resonate with me so much Mm mm-hmm like that genuinely does resonate with me emotionally so much that it's it is almost certainly not as good a comic as I think it is. Mm-hmm. Like almost certainly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, part of me is like I'm not always a generous reader. Like sometimes I can be overly critical for it, for ways that are almost as bad as being overly generous. Uh huh. In other words, so you're more I, like me at times than than like you. <laughs> Well, I'd li- I'd like to think that you are more objective mm-hmm. as a reader than me, just in general. Mm. Well, might be. I just I just might be. Um, I I I don't know if objective is the right word because I but but I see what you're saying. We're definitely different readers, and so it yeah. is one of those things where I feel like the Batman one is a big struggle for me. And like I said, it's well, also- what's interesting is like I think that's where you're not being objective. I think your Batman fandom is really fucking with you there. Well, 
Oh, I see your point, and I, I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't. No, 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 no. I genuinely think it comes down to you being like, but no, Batman deserves more respect. Yeah, but see, but this is kind of a weird thing. Like, I just, I kind of do feel that there are ways to critique a character without. It. I mean, I see what you're saying. And, and again, part of me is like, I, I suppose my thrash out is kind of this weird, like, spent a lot of time trying to weigh this and come to an objective opinion. And like I said, I mean, part of it may just be, uh, to drag in an, a, another aspect of things that I've been thinking and reading about is, okay. uh, I've, I got uh, my hands on a copy of manga in theory and practice. The Craft of Creating Manga by okay. uh, Hirohiko Araki, which finally got translated and published by Viz. It is a relatively um, short book, all prose, about 225 pages, in which Araki sits down and basically lays out his guidelines for creating good manga. Now... What's interesting about this for me, and is, a, is something that I've had to struggle with, is the name Hirohiko Araki will not necessarily mean much to you, Graham. It and means literally nothing to me, Jeff. Exactly. And for for the people who do know, it may not mean anything to them because I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, just as I always am with any any name that is that does not start with Tom and end with King. Uh, but. Araki is the creator of uh, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, which I had and loved and adored the first, well, the 15 volumes that I adored that, that were published in the U.S. by Viz a couple of years back um, and are now actually being republished in higher-end editions is actually, I think, the third arc of... Iraqi's, uh, what Iraqi considers Jojo's bizarre adventures. It's, it's basically one of the longest running manga of all time. And it helps that he has essentially, it spans generations. You start with one hero, uh, and I don't, I don't remember if Joseph Joestar must be the, the hero of the second volume, but essentially it's, it's a, it's a generational manga. It literally, whenever, um, whenever Rocky wants to do another volume, he has kids and offspring or cousins and progenitors of this one family lineage that has connections to superpowers and he gets to tell the stories and things that he wants to do. So the thing that's interesting about Iraqi is uh Jojo's Bizarre Adventure is incredibly long running. It has been spectacularly successful by any definition. And what's fascinating is the way in which Rocky is like, okay, I hate to tell you some of this stuff because I feel like I'm going to be creating my own competitors or this is time that these are valuable tools that I learned through literally decades of experience that I feel passing along to you. I want to do as a way to pay back for all the people who've mentored me, even though I'm aware 
that this is uh, essentially creating, um, you know, my own opposition. So mm-hmm. Araki goes and lays down a lot of groundwork, some of which would not necessarily be that surprising to you per se. Um, he talks about the, the golden road of manga, the royal road and the golden way essentially. And it's all boils down to the four fundamentals of manga structure. Unsurprisingly, characters, story, setting, and themes. What's interesting is the ways that he feels, for example, that in manga, that characters and settings are actually more important than story. Uh, and he would also goes on to say that manga creators would say that characters are more important to a story and his very heartfelt belief that it is actually the setting of a story that is more important to the readers um, rather than characters. So really, yeah, he's got some really fascinating stuff. He says readers want to immerse themselves within these worlds. Uh, if we say that a manga's creator foremost concern is that of creating characters, then readers are primarily motivated by the desire to be immersed in that creator's worlds, wishing to encounter certain characters and being interested in the stories are secondary concerns. And he goes on to say that essentially you can uh, essentially, if you have a story that is all plot in manga, it's almost certainly never going to be successful. That that in order for it to be successful, you've got to have the connections to the characters. Um, and a character is is again. He talks about how important it is to pull you into the story, but that once you're there, the setting is almost always, in his opinion, um, if you don't pay enough attention to the setting, you are sabotaging the the success of your manga. And you are um, essentially going to lose your readers. Now, the thing that is really interesting to me about reading this book, and this is the thing in which I sort of was struggling with, which I guess brings me back to my earlier point, although in a way I don't really remember now, is I find myself a Rocky, when you read his stuff in this book, it's all actually incredibly sound. And then what's brilliant is you get a few examples of Rocky's storytelling and the guy is insane. Like there is, there's a, <laughs> what do you mean he's insane? I, oh God. Okay. He's, in, he's very extreme or he's insane as in literally like he comes up with things that just make no sense. I, I, okay. I guess what I'm saying is, is for example, when he's talking about characters, Sometimes supporting characters can grow in unexpected ways. My character, Rohan Kashibe, who appears in JoJo's fourth arc, Diamond is Unbreakable, and other works, was not originally intended to be an important character. But when I started drawing him, I liked how he turned out, and so began utilizing him more often throughout the story. In the design process, I developed him enough to make sure he didn't overlap with Josuke or Koichi, who were the more major characters in personality, quirks, or visual design. But Rohan's character expanded due to other elements in the story. Uh, so he spends a lot of time talking about Rohan Kashibe, who is sort of, uh, as far as I can tell, Araki's go-to character, particularly when uh, Araki feels like doing one-shot stories. And in fact, at one point, when he's talking about how themes play into your implementation 
uh, he talks about a one shot that he does with Rohan Moshibe. And he actually has a page uh, in an earlier chapter. He's got a few pages from uh, a Rohan story. I guess it's the same story where he talks about how he introduces Rohan and how the character is instantly recognizable, but also the things that he does that makes you draw you into the character. And it's, it's a little bit sort of to me like when Steve Ditko is giving you advice about <laughs> designing a character. Cause when you see Rohan, and this is the thing that's hilarious, I've been reading about the character and I did not encounter him in, he comes after the sequence of JoJo's Bizarre Adventures that I'm used to. You meet Rohan, he basically looks like, um, Jughead if Jughead's crown was inverted. Right? Like, imagine Jughead wearing the crown upside down so that the points of his hat more or less are pointed towards his face. Right? And it, and it's you're, great. You're selling him. You're selling him very hard, Jeff. That's what I'm saying. Like, the comments are, like, like, Araki's got a page, and these pages are really invaluable, where he's got the page from the story, and there's little annotations. And it's like, Rohan's hair and hairband make him recognizable. He looks insane. And then they're, they're like, Fountain pens suggest that he's a manga because he's a manga creator. And sure enough, the thing that's great about Araki is is that this guy is literally wearing a leash around his head that around his neck that has the 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 uh, the um buckle is basically the head of a pen, and his shirt is decorated what? in giant pencils. And so essentially, he's. He's crazy. Like, Araki spends a whole <laughs> chapter talking about how the importance he learned to make his manga stand out was poses. How if you have a pose, it exemplifies a character and their behavior and makes them dramatic. And sure enough, in JoJo's Bizarre Adventures, one of the things that is great is how iconic he makes his characters pose. But he's got a section where he talks about a confrontation between two characters and he walks you through the, basically the note cards to the breakdowns to the actual pencils on the page. And when you see the actual pencils on the page where he's talked about the extent to which the importance of a character's pose positioning and the importance of the drama of the story, he draws a character that basically looks like Frankenstein in a bow tie whose neck is more or less attached to the wrong, to a shoulder instead of the center of his head. It's crazy. It's, it, again, yeah, I don't know how also, to stress it, this. It clearly works for him. Well, as he puts it, yes. But I suppose well, but this, yes, mm-hmm. I have two questions, but I'll let you get your point first because I, I think I'd be taking you off the off topic. So get your point. Well, I guess my point is basically a little bit along the lines of, for me, uh, as a quote-unquote objective reader, I find myself falling into what a lot of uh, literary critics and students would hasten to assure me is a false dilemma, which is am I reading these things in the way that the author is intending them to, you know, what is the extent to which Haney is writing camp deliberately? And what is the extent 
to which Bob Haney is somebody who may well have bitten down on a power cable at a crucial point in his life and received enough voltage in his head that what he thinks of as reality and what we think of reality is kind of a a, a pleasing d- distance between the two. You know what I mean? A sort of frisson that, that sort of arises. In other words, kind of like when I sit there and I read King and I'm like, King's not, I don't like what he's doing here. To what extent am I quote unquote reading him correctly? Because that difference is what makes the story sort of more or less succeed or fail. And in a way, well, but, but also like, you said, you know, this, this is, uh, you suggest this is maybe a false question. Yes. And that, that's sort of my response. Like, does it matter? Right. No. Like, I, the response you get is the response you get. Right. And I, and I, but, so this is the thing. When we're having these, when we're having these discussions, I think someone would pop in and very smartly and sensibly say, Graham is, uh, is not a more generous reader. He's just more comfortable with his subjective responses. And you, Jeff, cloak your general um, lack of joy, <laughs> your lack of ability to feel happiness in the world as a form of objectivity when really objectivity is a myth. There's only your subjective experience, you know? And for me, I spend a lot of time being like, no, but this is, I'm trying to get to what the reader intended, what the writer intends. Um, and, I not gauging the work success by how accurate he is or isn't, but the degree to which or why it allows me to elaborate why I am or am not pleased and also to describe why I have this strange little kick and twang that I have that in some cases is extraordinarily pleasing. Bob Haney's Brave and the Bold, uh, you know, um, or Hirohiko Araki's Jojo Bizarre Adventures, but which may not be what the authors intended or thought or is great. Like, in other words, am I supposed to read manga in theory and practice as a work of hilarious camp? Because the idea that someone who is an idiosyncratic creator who has managed to create a career for himself, um, thanks to the miracle of eyeing people with his idiosyncrasies uh, or is it or should it be read seriously which I feel is arguably an, a more important question when you have an instructional book than when you have a subjective work of fiction you know sure but oh I'm so I have so much to respond to there we'll go um, yeah definitely first of all I think you're trying to have it both ways I uh-huh. think you're trying to be subjective and objective at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that's overly complicated and is unnecessary. Right. I, th- I think, I think that, I think that if you drop the objectivity and instead of looking for the author's intent, instead just focus on your subjective response, mm-hmm. that that might be, I don't know, better for you. <laughs> But again, like such an idea is, is in itself, like my subjective take. So who knows? Not going to go further down that that role, but 
my, I genuinely am like, Jeff, I think you're trying to have it both ways, and that just seems overly complicated. Well, um, yes. Yeah, I agree get, that it getting, is overly complicated. Yeah. Getting back to your manga book. Mm-hmm. Um, completely unrelated to everything. Is it, uh, is it prose? Is it, is it, it's comics? It's, like, no, 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 sorry. It is, it's all prose with the example, with the exception of when he has examples, he, uh, he, ha- th- there's comics in the book to the extent that there are uh, examples. So in that case, it's more like Brian Bendis's words and pictures, except good, than Scott McCloud's <laughs> understanding oh, wow. comics. Um, yeah. I, I, just, I kind of really want to read this book now. I I will happily uh, make sure to pass it along to you the next time we see each other because I would love for you I, to read it. I'm, fair, I'm fairly sure it's got to be at the library. To be honest with you. Oh um, yes, if not now, very I, soon. I, yeah, I'm I'm super. Like it sounds fascinating, mm-hmm. in large part because you make it sound so nuts and camp. But but I guess you sort of have touched on an, another of my questions, which is: Is he intending it to be camp, or is he intending it to be? Like, do you think that in his mind, and again, we're getting close to like the objective versus the right. subjective, of the real intent. But does it read like an artwork of camp, or do you think he actually was like, no, I, I'm really spilling the secrets now? Oh, he really is spilling the secrets. He's really spilling the secrets, and they have. Uh, it has a very strong uh, authority to it. Honestly, although there is, God, dude, did I mark the page? The one part where, I mean, cause at, at page 58, like you're reading through a whole bunch of, like chapter three is about designing, is character design. And, and the subheadings are things like the golden way to making protagonists. What does your character want to do? What makes a good motivation? Make a list of motivations. Bravery begets empathy. Basic human desires as motivations. The allure of evil characters. Contrast the hero and the villain. Heroes fight alone, right? Like all this stuff. You think of it, you're like, that's all very straightforward. Listen to this section. Again, also straightforward. The difference between drawing men and women. Nowadays. Oh, good. That alone sounds good. Nowadays, both men and women can become heroes. Up until around the 1980s, <laughs> male characters oh had to be dynamic and take action, and female characters had to be delicate and passive. But now, that's no longer necessary. I think this reflects a greater cultural shift. Macho women became permissible in movies like Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2, 1991, and audiences began accepting women who could take punches and even keep on fighting after being thrown over the edge of a cliff. In JoJo's six arc, Stone Ocean, I created a female protagonist named Jolene, Jolene, and the only difference in the way I handled her as opposed to a male protagonist was not to draw her quite as beaten up, but she faces battles every bit as brutal as the male characters who came before. Presently, if anything sets apart male and female characters, it's only visual. This holds true for me as well. When I create new characters, I don't pay any attention to differences between men and women, aside from possibly setting them apart through clothing or makeup, or sometimes including observations based on women around me, like when I've wondered, how long is she going to dry her hair, or what is she doing in the bath for an entire hour? Oh my god! If there's no difference between male and female characters, you may be wondering how to decide when to use a female character. It's purely a matter of your own taste. Take Yasuo Hiroshi from Jojo's eighth arc, Jojo Lion, whom I made as a variation on Koichi Hiroshi from the fourth act, 
Diamond is Unbreakable. Koichi represented friendship, but I wanted to add romance to Jojo Lion, so I made the character a woman. I included many other female characters in Jojo Lion, but that was because I wanted to include elements of eroticism. I thought with the relationship God. between the protagonist Josuki and Yeshuo, I wouldn't be able to avoid such scenes. And I also wanted to challenge myself by attempting elements from genres I hadn't yet done for Shonen Jump. It even led me to draw bare breasts for the first time in my manga. If it doesn't in, matter... In my manga. <laughs> that, if, that's my favorite yeah. part of it. If it doesn't matter if a character is female or not, some artists think that adding a woman might create an element of charm and therefore gain more popularity, but I'm not so sure I agree. I think that even if you're creating a manga that includes love and romance, you could have it be between two male characters as long as that fits with your manga's world. As long as all your characters are appealing, you could get away with a world of all men. You have nothing to fear. That's literally the section on the difference between drawing men and women. He talks about there's no difference. That's then he talks wonderful. about drawing them because you can draw bare breasts and you have elements of eroticism and he couldn't walk away from that. And then in the end, he says, or you could just draw a book with all men. You can do that. It's amazing. I read that chapter and it was like being punched in the face with I don't know, gloves with laughing gas? It was so wrong and horrifying. Talking about Bob Haney ideas. Oh my god, right? I was just like, I couldn't believe the way that that chapter reverses itself. You really do think like, okay, this is a person who's being deadpan camp. But what it is, is it really is someone who stands so much behind their own opinions that they're able to go way down the road and i think that is in some ways he talks about this element and i think it is important this idea of being so committed to your work that you create something that is unique he talks about the importance of uniqueness in it and i think that there's other elements that i think run between good solid craftsmanship ideas very sensible thinking about the world of 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 manga and telling stories in manga and but there's also shit where you're just like dude like reading that section what the fuck did your editors think like we got to talk to this guy or they, uh, they, no they all thought this is gold it is because it's gold it's scary semi-misogynistic comedy gold like that is the spinal tap of manga and i just don't i don't know I just, again, I spent a lot of time reading this book being like, uh, am I the baddie, essentially, to, to, to lift the ever-popular uh, punchline from that um, Mitchell and Webb sketch? Mitchell and Webb sketch. I was like, thank God it's not Key and, Key and Peel, but boy, is that hilarious. So uh, <laughs> let's have the four of them do a show. Anyway... Manga in theory and practice. I want you to that, read that, it so that, you can no, help. No, that genuinely. I've already looked off. It's not a library, so I'm gonna have to work out some other way of getting it. But it sounds fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, well, you know me. I I love craft books like that, especially if they are wacky. Especially yeah. if, like I'm like, what is this? Yeah. 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 But I have to say, and this is something that that is very important to me after all the other stuff that I've said. Interestingly enough, two days after finishing that, 
Um, I picked up a copy of Golden Kamoi Volume 1 by Satura Noda, and I apologize because I did not look that up to make sure that I was reading it correctly as well. The first volume of which just came out uh, from Viz. It's a, it's a manga series uh, that won the ninth Manga Taisho Award. Uh, and Viz announced that they'd licensed the book back at New York Comic Con 2016. It is technically a seinen uh, novel uh, series as opposed to a shonen series, so it is, you know, for mature readers. Um, and it's hugely enjoyable. It it, it it's about a survivor of the Russo-Japanese War who's become a miner in uh, Hokkaido in order to um, provide for the widow of his dead comrade. And he hears a story about hidden gold stashed by a criminal group. And he essentially ends up going searching for gold and ends up joining forces with an Ainu girl, uh, Asirpa. So... I don't know, uh, essentially, uh, hopefully the book even says, because I've got it digitally, I can't, I can't break it open. It, it's like a historical action manga of these two people facing uh, forces of bajillions while out in the wilderness. She's an experienced hunter. He is a badass slash soldier whose, whose nickname is literally like, the immortal Sugimoto because he claimed essentially he, he was too, too determined to live to actually be killed on the battlefield. He's got scars all over his body. He's an amazing fighter, but even more so is his amazing survival instinct. The two of them against the forces of nature against other hunters in the squadron. It's, it's, genuinely a great book the uh, literally the only complaint that i had was a i don't have the next volume b because i bought it digitally more and more um american manga publishers are particularly viz is kind of being real dicks about publishing their uh comics digitally because manga as you know um relies on a lot of double page spreads like a ton of them and so for me, I read on the iPad in portrait mode. So you see two pages side by side. The problem is, is that the editors who are putting up the, the manga are not checking to see if the pages read right. So you'll get a double page spread that is broken across pages, if you see what I'm saying. The, the, the double sure. pages aren't side by side on the fucking iPad. So it's this insane nightmare where you have to slowly drag the page so that you can see the double page spread as it breaks across pages for the page. And it's, uh, it's a nightmare. That is a nightmare. But one thing that I will tell you that is also amazing is, is that looking at the rules of Iraqi's manga from, from his influence on what you have the characters do and why you have the characters do them and how you present them it's it's all in there <laughs> it's it's really fascinating to me the extent to which um Iraqi's rules are completely being used by uh Noda in this series and again 
they work. Well, that, that's just it. Like it's it's his his description of his rules mm-hmm. and his illustration of his rules can be amusing. Right. You know, and you can read it and you'd be like, well, this is just insane. Like you're saying, like, this is just nuts. Mm-hmm. But then when you see it put into practice, it can still work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the examples that are the insane part. Agreed. But very weird. Very, very weird. That's kind of – that's – yeah. That that makes the book all the more interesting to me, the manga and theory and practice one. Because it is the – you read it and it's written and portrayed in such a way that you're like, this is, you know, ho, 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 funny, wacky thing. And then the more you think about it, you're like, oh, shit, but but he's right. It works. Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so really interesting. Interesting to, to, to that regard. Uh, and I should also mention that, Graham, you should maybe check out my lesbian experience with loneliness if you haven't already. Which is that's the name of a book, everyone. I, it, I know that. It's just that the way you said it, you were actually, actually sounded like you were like Graham. You, you should check out my lesbian yeah, exactly. experience with loneliness. My lesbian experience, it's, exactly, and also the book of the same name. Yeah, the book of the same name, as well as my photo series on imagery. Yeah, uh, yeah. That it is. It is also incredibly good by uh, Nagata Kabi, and it's interesting because amazing, what's that? amazing thing. I've, I've heard that. Like, it's, it's just genuinely amazing. It is. It is. And I kind of have that sort of like, yeah, I'm not a, a pure, objective, ahedonic mess. Like, I can read my lesbian experience with loneliness and be genuinely struck by how strong and great and cohesive it is just across the board. That's it. It's, to me, it's a pretty big achievement. But... You know, I say things like that about Gabrielle book, Gabrielle Bell books that you pick up and you're like, ooh, hate to tell you, Jeff, but ooh. <laughs> it's not as good as Tom King's Batman. Right. Well, which is good. Hope, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that someone will actually slap that uh, across the top of Tom King's Batman trade, just the same way that you got quoted as the, uh, on Judge Anderson I, year I, one. I just, I just saw that on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, you just nuts. That is nuts. You responded to to it while I was talking, by the way. So I'm. Yes, I'm... I know. <laughs> I multi thoughts, Jeff. <laughs> I'm glad one of us can, but uh, but yeah. Hmm. I gotta say, hmm. It's great that you got. It's very sweet that someone was kind enough that, to include what, me because that's all you. Funny is great. Well, that's what I say. Is it all me? It is. I mean, I'm guessing you haven't read the books, so I guess I, it has to exactly, be. Exactly. Exactly. I've been, I love 2000 AD, and actually one of the things that I'm very excited about is I'm now in a better position to read their PDFs, uh, than I was previously. Um. Oh, that's good. Oh, cause you got your, your new iPad, right? Yeah. And I gotta tell you, my new iPad, it's interesting. I got it, uh, because I wanted the super storage space. The processor is much faster. And so what was interesting to me is I was having some lag uh, with my Comixology app, and I figured it was just that I had downloaded too many books and my iPad was getting old. I don't have – it may be that the size of my library is more than Comixology the app can handle, or that app really needs an upgrade, like really needs an upgrade because – 
it's still a little sluggish, especially for loading and showing pictures like, you know, the, the, the little carousel of books that you've read recently. It can be a second or two just to fill up the initial screen, which is surprising because I'm like, it's still the same number of books. It must be retrieving the database. Anyway, so I was like, that's weird. I expected that to be faster, but Goodreader, which is the PDF app that I use to read uh, our Fantastic Fours, and when I grab 2000 AD copies that I'm not reading in-app, but I've purchased as PDFs or gotten review copies of, that, which used to really lag, uh, is lightning fast, which is exciting for me because there's a number of trades like um like i i i got a review copy of gold tiger you know the yeah. the parody yeah. 2000 ad strip and mm -hmm. also the pd the new pdf of the history of 2000 ad that i was looking forward to reading that were just too slow like i would just too long to load the page and then i would turn the page and and now they are lightning fast i can jump to uh, a year's worth of fantastic four issues and the cover gallery loads instantly and as soon as i click on an issue it's fully loaded so that part is great and i'm kind of hoping that that's going to get me back into 2000 ad stuff cuz it's it's not, it's not, it's not just that they're using you on pull quotes, Graham. Heaven forbid. It's just sheer desperate competition and desire to be acknowledged. It really is <laughs> more the idea of like, I kind of miss, I've kind of been missing that 2000 AD flavor. I want to get more of it back in there. So, uh, you get the, the email, right? I do. I do, which I'm really grateful for. And I've actually downloaded some stuff, whether it's the Leopard of Lime Street or I was gonna say things. Leopard from Lime Street is Yeah. Is just amazing, but also is so very unlike American comics. Which is why I'm so excited I, I, to read it in a way. I'm super fascinated for yeah. you to read it, yeah. Exactly. Cause I, I, it is very, even from the descriptions, it's really clear how much of it is heavily influenced by Spider-Man. Oh, and, it's, it's, it's fucking Spider-Man, but told in like three page installments of which there's like 72 panels a page. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, it's nuts. It really is. It's hyper compressed, but like British Spider-Man and is you read it now, and as a kid, I, I totally did not get the Spider-Manness at all. And you read it now, and you're like, "This is literally Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, this is as Spider-Man as you can get, short of when the characters turning to the reader and being like, you know, this is just Spider-Man, right?" <laughs> at the risk of, because I mean, I really could just be talking about comics forever and ever, especially when it comes to both flagellating myself and interrupting you. But what? Well, did I, you... I do think. Yep. I was going to say maybe you should wrap up because we are over two hours at this point. We you, are. You have a question first. You have a I question do, first. which is which is kind of I want to use that as a tr as a segue of again this re idea that no one should listen to anything that I say. What did you think of Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man number one? I wish I could answer that, but I haven't read it yet. Oh, I thought you'd gotten a copy. Ooh. No, no, I've uh, I'm going to end up buying it because I have had so many people tell me, "Oh, this is great." Like this is this is great. It's, so I you're you're going to tell me that it's not. 
No, I actually really liked it because I saw some people, I want to say, for one thing, someone pointed out on Twitter, they weren't especially happy with it. They didn't think it was especially funny. And someone else said that Adam Kubert was the wrong artist for it, which I'm inclined to agree. I think the art is not strong, but I think Zdarsky, I think it's really funny. I think the majority of it is really good, especially considering I read like the first three issues of the clone conspiracy plus the two or three lead-in issues i started reading the clone conspiracy trade i read that i read that just this week as well oh really i only got part way through and then put it down i was reading it recently and i feel like there's a whole other thing in another alternate world where i kept talking endlessly for hours i transitioned from tom king's batman to dan slot's spider-man because i think that that would be an interesting comparison contrast in a lot of ways, you know, mm-hmm. all that being said for somebody who spends a lot of time kind of grouching and grousing about slot Spider-Man is being kind of not my Spider-Man. I'm very impressed by how enjoyable I found Zdarsky's Spider-Man a lot. And there's a now, backup. Did you story. read? Yes. Yeah, I've the backup story is Goran Parlov, right? Yes. And it's because I saw I saw someone put a panel of that on Twitter and I was like, that looks amazing. Yeah, it's just a backup story. But you're just like, fuck, in a perfect world, the artist would have been reversed on this. I mean, because it's it's a it's a backup story by Zdarsky that is literally I, I don't know, like it's it's almost like someone trying to write an original Marvel UK story. Like it's just a six page story that is just kind of like, yeah, this happens and this happens and this happens and ta-da, you know, but, but holy fucking shit, the art. And then I just, Zdarsky, we'll see, maybe, maybe I'll run dry on it, but I'm like, I, I really liked it and I had gotten the impression that you were not down with it. So I was like, oh boy, well, we should talk about. Well, I, 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 I was not amazingly down with the free comic book day uh, story that he did. Mm. Which just seemed to be trying too hard to me. This may come off as trying too hard, definitely, definitely. But I mean, it came out. It was fun, but also I was like, I feel like I can feel him sweat to make it fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. But I, like I said, I've heard so many people tell me that this comic is great. Mm-hmm. An, an unusually high amount of people, especially for I was going to say Spider-Man book, which sounds super mean to dance lot. But, you know, especially for a superhero book, especially for a Marvel superhero book. No, I kind of get what you mean about Spider-Man. I kind of, I kind of felt myself being like the last few years being like, wow, I used to love Spider-Man and I guess he's just really not my jam anymore. You know, like I'll take my Spidey thrills via Spider-Gwen or some other form of Spider-Surrogate. But this was kind of like, oh, this is... This is, this is, this is a lot of what I like. This is a lot of what I like in Spider-Man. And a lot well, of that is... Well, is it not being positioned as that? Like, is this not being positioned as, hey, it's the Spider-Man you miss? Sure. But I feel like they've done that a few times. And Spidey sure. started out being that way, although it was more kind of the art and then it was some other stuff that wasn't. I don't know. I'll just be curious. Let's, let's, Thank God, because we're already running long. Let's talk about it the next time we've got an episode and after you've read the ep- uh, read the issue. Which is next week, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I have a week to read uh, Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man. Issue and one. let's hope I don't, I don't read the Bill Mantlow issue. <laughs> <laughs>
You read the 1977 issue? I read the 2017 issue! <laughs> was it 77 that launched? I'm gonna to have to look that up now. It probably was, although it didn't start off as being Mantlo, of course. It was Jerry Conway started off with Was it? it? Yep. Yeah, Mantlo comes in much I, later I, in I the don't, run. I literally don't even know why I was like, is it? Because of course you know. Of course you'd know. <laughs> Uh, it is, it's Jerry Conway. It's from 1976. I was a year out. I should have figured that out. Yeah. Yep. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Anyway, uh, Graham, we should probably start, you should start closing this joint up. I should. This is where I tell all you patients, patient listeners that, A, you can apparently find a quote of mine on the cover of Judge Anderson Year One. Holy shit! Books. Thank you, Michael Mulcher. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing it's Mulcher. Like, I honestly, I'm like, how else could that happen? It has to yeah. be Mulcher. Yeah. Um, thanks, though, Michael. I, I, I honestly, I don't know. Did I say it in a podcast? Did I say it in a post? I don't, I don't know where this came from. I think you, anyway, I really, I have a memory of you saying it on the podcast. So, well, well then, that's awesome. Yeah. Good job, me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, it's credit to the podcast as well. Mm-hmm. That makes makes me very happy. Anyway. What I really meant to say was on weightwatchpodcasts.com, you'll find show notes for this and lots of episodes of the Weight Watch Variety Hour that you're listening to right now. <laughs> you can also find on weightwatchpod.tumblr.com uh, various images of comics that I've been reading. Occasionally, Jeff, if he ever comes back to Tumblr, although oh, I think man. you're potentially a bit too busy these days to do ridiculous things like that. Maybe one day we'll see Jeff again. Who can tell? I've uh, but tell right you, now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I should you say, you've got, you've got the new iPad, Jeff. I know. Okay. So here's the thing on the old iPad, like whenever I read comics, I swear to God, almost every time I would think like, Oh, I've got to screenshot this so that I can post it on the Tumblr. And I think I'd like to think that that's actually going to be, uh, easier to have happen now with the new iPad. The weird thing is the other day, like, um, uh, my wife has been super busy on a big project that has taken up tons of her time and as you know because you had to do the editing not me i didn't have to really worry about stuff once the baxter building was wrapped so sunday i found myself with a lot of time on my hands and i was like you know what i'm going to start posting those pictures from t- uh, from the comics that i've been reading uh, onto tumblr and i broke open my photo program on the ipad and i looked at it i'm like oh shit i these were all months ago. I have nothing to say about this anymore. So gather you rosebuds while you may. My my goal, new goal now is continue screenshotting, but actually posting them so that we get them up on the Tumblr. Because Look, I, Jeff, I literally think Jeff, of that every Having week. nothing to say has never stopped me. Just do it. <laughs> Just fucking do it. Spoilers, everyone. You might get a lot of John Burns off a flight this week. Oh, no. I, I've been reading through that, and let me tell you, it really makes you appreciate John Burns Fantastic Four so much more. <laughs> I'm not joking. No, it, I totally get it. I totally get it. Wow. Yeah. Also, anyone who's looking to be super masochistic about their comic reading, John Burns off a flight is now in its entirety on Marvel Unlimited. Ooh. And, man. Mm. How many issues is that? Is that 30 plus? 28, 28 issues. Okay. I knew he crossed 25, but it's fascinating how, how, how it's amazing how much he just, it's not even burning through story, does not give a shit about his own plot. It's kind of weird, isn't it? The yeah. mm-hmm. Like it's genuinely amazing. Uh, but we, that next, next week we should talk about that as well, Jeff. 
You should reread some of those issues and we should talk oh, about Jesus it. Jesus Christ. Okay, oh, I think it, I should. It, it honestly will be like bizarro Baxter building. <laughs> I think I, you know, I think you're right. I, I am going to take this masochistic challenge and I'm going to, I'm going to make it a priority. Um, we are also on Twitter at Wait What Podcast. Jeff's on Twitter solo at LazyBastid at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. And I'm on Twitter solo at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast, which means that Jeff has a little something to tell you. I sure do. I have to say how great the people are at Patreon. I re- we really, really genuinely appreciate all of our listeners, honest and for true. I think that we um, we really did uh, hit the jackpot, Tiger, because I think the people that follow us are really very, very smart and genuinely kind, uh, and generous. And, uh, and the people on Patreon, definitely the same. And at least as far as the generosity, maybe just a little bit more so. Because even though we are an entirely free podcast and have been for the last, Jesus, seven years, I think, um, we have a dedicated group of people who throw us a little bit of cash every month as a way to thank us. Uh, and, Thanks to them, we do things like the Baxter Building podcast, which is amazing. Um, I, we've got to figure out a way to sort of repost or open up the um, insane work that Graham did on the um, Advent calendar from two years ago because that was – Well, th- that will have to be at Christmas. Yeah. Like yeah. for people who are not Patreon supporters – but listen to this podcast. You know that I like Christmas a lot. Uh, a couple of years ago, a couple of Christmases back, we did an advent calendar. Mm-hmm. Jeff and I did uh, every day of December. We would post, and it was it was like small things. It was nothing special. Uh, an advent calendar for uh, for the podcast listeners that ended in an episode. Did we ever put that episode live? For I, yeah, yeah. The, the episode was only live. a Patreon thing. I don't remember. Oh, oh yeah, no. I think maybe it was just a Patreon thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I, th- I think there was like a Christmas a Christmas Patreon only episode as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the thing things happen on Patreon occasionally. I actually have, and I'm saying this purely so again, masochists can can sign up and and get access to this. I'm going to be doing a Patreon, maybe not Patreon only, but definitely Patreon early. Uh, rundown of what happens in Rocky Groom Space Ranger. The oh, thing issues that take place on Battle World as a, as a, uh, addition to Baxter Building. So mm-hmm. probably in the next couple of weeks I'll go up. Wow. Wow. That is crazy. Anyway, keep, keep talking, keep talking to oh, anyway. Jeff. I completely yeah. interrupted you. By the way, if anyone who's currently a patron on Patreon, uh, who joined after the fact wants access to the advent calendar, just drop us a note. Just send us an email at waitwhatpodcast.gmail.com and we'll, I think we've still got, I think the password's still active. We just have to send it to you. Cause Graham, it should be, I should say, did 70% of the work and did amazing stuff, but I'm weirdly, oddly proud of my Oh no, yours were yours were the highlight. They genuinely were. Oh, I I I I I wouldn't go that far. No, no, they really were, Jeff. Oh, Graham, you were I I I'm the the luckiest podcaster alive. Uh you're very generous. I I let's agree to disagree cuz I think your stuff was amazing, but I am proud of what I did there. So so we do that because 
people support us on Patreon and it inspires us to heights of, of, of frenzy and fancy freeness. And among those people that we would like to thank uh, are the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios and Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We're especially grateful to their ongoing and continuing support of this podcast. I guess I was redundant. Uh, I, uh, we are also incredibly grateful the, that neither of them have crush the galaxy either individually or collectively i have to say well, I, I, as far as we know as far as we know that's true i suppose we could just be um sort of a cosmic afterthought uh that being said i saw some photos of uh, empress audrey our empress in some new cat furniture and it was really hard not to take the pictures and repost them to our um tumblr <laughs> oh my god, I didn't see that. Yeah, I was on that. Twitter. Also, I, th I think you've just given away that Empress Audrey's a cat. I don't think you've ever said that before. I didn't. I just said that Empress Audrey was in cat furniture. I didn't. <laughs> I'm someone who also likes hanging out in cat furniture, Graham, so I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Also, I don't know what you're saying. I, I'm not sure. Also, the word pause has been used for many, many podcast episodes, but I guess, I don't know. Oh, come on, Paul could, Paul could go anywhere. Uh, right, it really could. Could. As could cat furniture. If, I mean, you know. Kind of. Back to you, hey, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> People were getting super punchy. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening, as always. Thank you, Jeff and listeners, for putting up with me when I am in a completely different room right now to an air conditioner because right now it's like 100 degrees in Portland. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, it's, it's very warm. Uh, thank you everyone we will be back next week when Jeff is going to be talking about Alpha Flight and I am going to be talking about Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man in an episode we like to call we're sponsored by Marvel now I guess <laughs> I, was so, going to, I was going to say in an episode we like to call how is this remotely fair <laughs> That's true. Graham, you should read this good comic. Jeff, you should read these 28 biceps. <laughs> <laughs> That's sadly true. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, everyone, we'll talk to you next week. As always, bye! Perfect. Oh, perfect. oh man. <laughs> uh.